to the next podcast. Who's next? Who's next? It was beautiful. In this podcast. All right. Are we ready? Yeah. All right. So basically, this is like a topic I think we've kind of talked about before a little bit, but not necessarily specifically. So I thought I was going to bring it up uh, because it's something I've, I know we've come across, especially with Jerome. Uh, When we did the movie and comic episode, we talked about like Deadpool and we talked about how to him, it's kind of like marketed to kids. Or like it's for kids, even though like clearly like the movies are are. Um, however, though it's everything about him screams like kids will love it, right? And so we had this kind of conversation about that. And uh, one of the things I remember seeing, and I looked it up. There's an advertisement from the '90s with Mortal Kombat, and you see like three of the characters coming out of the arcade and grabbing two kids that look around the ages of like ten. And so when we talk about, oh, well, these are adult games and not really for kids. I think nowadays there's a little more of a delineation between that. But back in the day, I don't think there was. And like it's kind of why the courts came at, you know, Mortal Kombat and, and all that. And the rating system was built because, um, you know, you got a game where you're ripping out people's hearts and all this kind of shit. And you're you got a poster made where there's like reaching kids playing on the arcade. Like who, who are you expecting to play these games? Mm-hmm. So, um, <clears throat> I just thought that'd be an interesting topic. We'll get to, uh, yeah. I found the federal trade commission's report from, I think around 2006 or eight or something like that. And, um, they talk about a survey they had back in the two thousands, and like, and it follows up on the progression of that from like 2000 to 2004 or 2006 or something about marketing to children of adult content. So it's specifically right. speaking about what we're talking about. So I'm going to go over a few things on that. And so that's the kind of topic for today that I thought would be uh, interesting. So um, what'd you think? Oh, it sounds good. Yeah, uh, I can definitely think of some examples. You know, mm. yeah, you, like you said, Deadpool's one. I think Lobo would be another one. If you're going like from comic books and stuff, because there's a lot of it. Because, um, like you know, '90s was all about the edgy stuff and everything. But you know, I'll I'll save it for when we actually get into it. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so in the meantime, uh, this is Who's Next podcast, and I have Mr. Kevin with me on the line. And, Yo, uh, what's up? Of course, hopefully if you clicked on this, you might know who I am. Uh, my name's Seth. You might know Sammy Savage 88 on Twitch. Um, and, of course, the lovely fellows at the Nerds Podcast and Blurreds R Us Podcast uh, mentioned me from time to time. And uh, y'all might be coming from there. Also, shout out to the Longbox guys. Uh, Mike had some interesting theories that we'll talk about probably next episode on WandaVision. And um, overall, like, 
Yeah, like uh, Longbox Guys is a really good comics podcast, and uh, I really want to shout them out. And uh, on the top here, instead of at the yeah. end. And, <laughs> um, and I've been a guest on all these different podcasts, so you might even hear me if you listen around on it for a bit. Yeah. Um, and uh, Kev, um, what's your streaming situation been like, buddy? Are you streaming? Uh, you kind of been on a break for a while, huh? Yeah, I've been on a break for a while. Uh, I've actually been working on something else that I've been doing. I'm planning on posting up to YouTube. I'm gonna get into. I guess I can get into it because we're gonna talk about like what we've been doing, what we've been playing, and shit. Sure, but you can yeah. go ahead and start it. Go ahead, bud. Yeah. Uh, well, I've been doing a uh, Blood Level Four run of Bloodborne. And I've been recording it, and I'm kind of writing up the script and kind of narrating over it, and like talking about uh, all the different strategies. I'm trying to make like a um, a longer form video out of it. It might be like 30 minutes, like an hour of footage. So I'm up to the Forbidden Woods now. So the next boss I got to beat is the uh, Shadows of Yarnum. So I've gotten kind of far in it, about halfway, I guess I would say, because well, how many bosses? I think I only got like what five or six bosses left to do before. And then I'm gonna do the DLC and everything too, because I'm explain to explain all that in the video uh, about everything that I'm doing. I'm doing all bosses. I'm gonna be doing um, one particular NPC fight, which is the um, the Bloody Crow of Canehurst, which is an NPC you get by doing uh, Eileen's um, side quest. Oh, damn, sorry, that was my phone. It's all good, homie. Yeah, but yeah, uh, you do solid lean side quest, and you can fight probably the hardest NPC in the game called the Bloody Crow Canehurst in uh, the Cathedral Ward. And the I'm th I decided to throw that one in there because he's pretty much as hard as the boss. So I'm like, you know what? If I, I he's a good little bonus, a good little bonus challenge for me. I figured as if you know beating like Lady Maria and Orphan Akaz in the DLC isn't going to be hard enough for me, probably. But yeah, that's what I've been doing. Uh, I've also been playing Final Fantasy IX. Uh, I haven't been playing it too much, but I've been kind of playing it off and on whenever I kind of need a break from Bloodborne. Because uh, playing Blood Level 4, uh, it's been a bit of a grind. You know, the first boss I got stuck on was uh, Bloodstarred Beast. It took me... I got to do the exact count, but I think it took me somewhere near 20 tries to get it. Because uh, just about everything, you know, below level four, I'm at the weakest level possible. And just about everything he does one shots me, especially if he grabs you and he bites you and with that poison and everything, like you just might as well uh, not even do anything. Just put the controller down because you're dead. You can't even you can't even recover. But yeah, it's going to be interesting, an interesting video. I'm putting it together. Uh I probably, I'm not sure when I should have it done, but I probably should have it done sometime within the next week. I should probably, and it'll probably go up. And I'll post it up on our Facebook group, um, Hard Mode Only, and I'll tweet it out on my Twitter at, uh, at Sir Kalo, uh, on, uh, you know, on Twitter. So you can all see it, enjoy it, my my suffering. But I am planning on starting to stream again. I'm gonna probably start streaming again, probably tomorrow. I've been trying to prepare to uh, to get back into the streaming and everything because I did take a break for a while. I needed a little mm. break from it. I got you. That's what's up, man. Uh, that sounds interesting. I'm I'm looking forward to you uh, the video you put out on that, but um, Bloodborne for sure, man. That sounds like a very interesting thing. Um. Give me one second, man. All right.
You all right? I'm back. Sorry about that. Um. Anyways, uh, no, that I'm sounds awesome. Uh, so I've been playing a couple of different things. Um, and I'm also thinking of doing something similar to what you just were talking about. Not exact. Um, I'm thinking of doing it more like easy mode versus hard mode. And what doing is playing the game on the easiest setting and the hardest setting and beating it through and grabbing clips from like both settings and like just kind of highlighting differences and differences in game experience and stuff like that. Uh, you know what game you should do that with? Yeah, I think if you're the first one you should do that with, you can Resident Evil 6. You're yeah, playing right. through that right now. <laughs> I think that would make for a, a, You should record some clips, like as many clips as you can, and let me put together a compilation of the difference between easy mode and hard mode on that game because I yeah. think it would be hilarious. I think you might be right. I might actually do that. I might just go through an easy run and just blow through it and then put it on no hope. Which is what I'm doing now. Like, no hope is ridiculous, dude. And some of the stuff seems so unresponsive with it. So it's like some one of the things we can get into is Resident Evil 6. That's what I've been playing. And uh, <clears throat> I'm playing on no hope mode. And I just made it through, I think, the first chapter of Chris's uh, storyline. And, uh, yeah, it's rough. You get one set of healing at the beginning. And um, it like it's like six tablets you'll get. And... Um, each tablet revives like uh, builds up a block of health and you have like maybe six blocks and uh basically every hit you take is like a block of damage sometimes more and uh yeah it can be pretty rough um <laughs> yeah from what i was watching you the other day it did man. not look pleasant at all it didn't mm. look like a good type of difficulty like it wasn't look like doesn't look like something you should do on a first playthrough it no. looks like something you do when you probably unlock all the weapons and freaking like different cheats and shit because you were rolling around and like people were shooting you and you were like getting knocked on your ass by like SMGs. And, <laughs> and it's freaking hilarious how freaking, oh, it was hilarious how dopey that, that game looked. Yeah. yeah and, and, but like, I mean, but uh, there's some like real broken mechanics. Like, literally, there was a thing where two guys were on top of me and I was just rolling between them and slicing them and, and then killed them. Like, yeah, because I they, saw that. and sometimes they would just get stuck where like they would just stand there and just stay. I'd be like right in their face. Like, this happened one time I turned a corner and like I thought it was one of my dudes and like I was like right in his face and then I kind of stopped and turned around and I was like, oh, that's an enemy. So then I went to aim at him, and then he finally like, kind of woke up out of it and went to attack me. It's like, oh, shit. Like, <laughs> it's fucking broken. <laughs> uh, this is why I never played it. It's still sitting in my Steam library with mm. zero hours on it. I bought it on sale for, like, I don't know, I forget, like, $10 or $5 or something like that. It was mm. really cheap, mm. and I just never touched it because I was like, ugh. Because I've basically because of all the stuff like that that i've heard about and i'm like you know what after five i think i'm i think i'm good you know and then seven came out and i'm like yeah there's no reason for me to go back to that unless unless there's, we're just gonna there's interesting story things in there like you actually find out about uh ada wong like you, you see her um she was actually building a lab yeah she's not like um I guess a person she's like some kind of cloned monstrosity of something. And it was, oh, okay. Yeah. Like they, they actually do 
Like if you play through Leon's, you run into a lab and you see video results of them basically hatching Ada Wong. <laughs> so <laughs> That's like, interesting. Okay. Yeah, th- there is some stuff in there that that looks like it might be kind of interesting because like that's one thing i did hear about six six has a lot of story shit in it a lot of stuff in it oh god for all the problems i guess i guess i might have to end up freaking just Mm. going through it for the story then yeah if i'm not mistaken i I will not be doing it on hard mode i think that's where we get revealed about um Wesker having like 13 clones or some shit like that is I think in there yeah. too if I'm not mistaken so yeah there's a bunch of stuff in there uh, and actually you one of the storylines you play through is Ada Wong like she's a playable story uh, I think it's uh, you could play with Chris Leon Ada this new guy Jake and um, I think that's it Chris two three well, there's five of them. I'm pretty sure, so I might be missing one. But um, look, like honestly, it's not as bad as what I hear people say. Uh, like the worst things about it is is action focused. For like a a traditional survival horror game, and uh, I find it interesting because there's like a whole thing I've been noticing in some of the Resident Evil groups I'm in, where there's been people making these posts like. Resident Evil 4, 5, 6, 7, and now looking like maybe 8. Like, they're not Resident Evil games. The only Resident Evil, the real Resident Evil games are 0, 1, 2, 3, and I think like Code Veronica, they encapsulate in that as well. Uh, Everything from 4 on is a, a huge deviation from the series. Um, well, I don't think the seven and eight are going to end up being. The, I mean, seven wasn't uh, that bad. I mean, it was pretty. I thought it was really good, pretty good. Like, they could have expanded on it for more. But is it like, Resident Evil though? I guess that's the question. Like, and what what's the real question here is like, well, what are you considering Resident Evil? Because like, are right. you considering a Resident Evil game just tank controls? Because yeah, you're right, that kind of ended with Code Veronica, if I'm not mistaken. Right, yeah. like if you're talking about like uh, what is a resident, what hallmarks of Resident Evil, like uh, you're talking about just like survival horror, you're talking like tank mm-hmm. controls. I mean, like I don't know, like what are you what are you looking for in here? Because uh, I feel yeah. like seven and eight are good survival horror. I well, feel, you I feel can't like seven's say, a good survival. Yeah, yeah, eight survival we'll see when, when when it comes out. But seven, I'd agree with you. You're right. It is a good survival horror game, and I would say the remakes of two and three, I would still consider in survival horror. Although three remake is kind of toe in that line of being an action game, like there are some elements of survival horror with it, but um, it 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 is kind of like with the action button that lets you dodge roll, and uh, you get heavier amounts of ammo and stuff. It it's um. It is debatable. There's a there's a debate for that one, but two remake for sure. Two remake playing that on hardcore mode. I would like that's actually one of the ones I was thinking to be the first video I was going to work on because I think two remake is playing it on hardcore mode is the right way to play it. Yeah, I, yeah, I think it is because um, it really feels more like 
traditional Resident Evils with the way you have limited saves and then you have like limited ammo and things. Yes. Too. And then if I remember correctly, they changed the enemy placements in hardcore mode, don't they? I feel yeah, like they do. I believe they do as well as they um I don't well no, I don't think they change them completely. Uh, cause I, well, I guess it depends. I don't know if I played it twice through, like I've played a and B Leon and Claire sides, but, uh, I don't know if I, um, replayed it again on, on, cause I played both of those on hardcore mode and a lot of the, the liquors were kind of in the places like there were some similarities, but there, there are some differences too. It's, it does have a different feel to the playthrough. Um, but what, what I'd say is like, it really captured survival horror. Like I've said this on previous episodes, but like having these boss fights where you're down to the last bullet and then you shoot and you kill it and then like you win, like it's such a great feeling and it's, and it's such a great feeling and it's such like a, you know, interesting way that they do that. Like, and, and I've had that experience multiple times playing on hardcore mode. So yeah, it is because you're struggling through and it really feels like a triumph because you're like, oh man, I really got to, you know, I got to strategize and like calculate my ammo or how many shots is it going to take to, to kill this enemy? Oh, I got two liquors over here. I only got freaking like one grenade and like a couple of bullets. How am I going to do this? And, mm -hmm. you know, so when you finally pull it off, it feels like you worked for it to try it. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, but it's like that survival horror where you've only got, you really got to think about what you want to do. Limited ammo, yeah. limited save, stuff like that. Like, yeah, that's like Resident Evil experience 100%. And, um, like that stuff is cool. And I think seven has elements of that. And seven belongs in that survival horror, but it's not, um, tank control, you know? Um, four definitely is an action game. It is a comical, crazy, it's it's a malicious action game. It yeah, like I I don't understand. I've heard some people who praise four and look four is a good game. Uh, I'm not saying it's a bad game. Yeah, it's not a bad game. I don't but, know, but it's so it is so weird and off the beaten path of any coming Resident from Evil game. I mean, think about it this way. Think about if you're somebody who didn't play Cold Veronica and you went from three to four. Yeah, no, right. there's a huge jump there. Well, even yeah, if you play Code Veronica, I haven't played Code Veronica yet. In fact, I actually just bought it. I just bought it on my PlayStation ah. Five, and I plan to give that a playthrough pretty soon. Um, right. So I, I I do have it now, but I haven't played it. But my understanding of the game, it plays a lot like I guess two and three. Like it's the it's mm -hmm. the tank control. You know, you're in a military base, I think, in this one, if I'm not mistaken. You're playing as Claire, this kind of the main character there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh... That's my understanding of it. So um, that's more of the classic. So if you even if you play Code Veronica and you jump to 4-4, four, four is such a crazy jump. It changes the game completely, the over-the-shoulder aiming. And, like, it's not even like, okay, Resident Evil 2 remake, over-the-shoulder camera, um... But it's definitely survival horror. Resident Evil 4 is like you can shoot people in the kneecaps, run up to them, and like roundhouse kick them to oblivion. You know, like it is like comically crazy, funny, like silly shit. It's almost like slapsticky in a way because like you'll kick them and they'll just go flying. Like it's just, it's it's and wild. Yeah. But it's fun. There's it's, the things it's, that it's fun. 
Yeah. And then there's like the things that happen in like the cutscenes and like the different things. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to think of something specific, but like the one thing people always meme on is the freaking uh, the salesman guy. What are you buying? Yes. What are you selling? Oh my God. Yeah. yeah that's pretty. That's it. And that, and that is only in four. We have never seen that dude ever come back. I don't think yeah, he's ever just like come the back. attache case. That's not a thing that's really came back either. It's like it looks mm. like they might be bringing it back in some form in eight. I've been hearing people say because mm-hmm. what they were showing in the um the demo. But if they do, I think it, I don't know. It depends on how they spin it and how they use it in in because yeah. the the demo didn't really have any like um combat or anything in it. So. I'm not against the attaché case, but that was a new, another new thing that they mm-hmm. did mm-hmm. that really felt, I don't know. I mean, it could be interesting because it looks like something, if you play Diablo 2, that's what it reminds me of because Diablo 2, it's the grid. And then like you have to like fill up the grid and like items take up so many different spaces. Yeah, yeah. And everything, right? Yeah, that's how Ford did it, yeah. Yeah, that's how the, the attaché case is. So mm-hmm. Using that could be a different type of a management. Like I think it could be interesting if it's implemented well True. in a game. Or you can have Resident Evil Six and there's really no inventory management at all. Like none that I can tell. You just right. have inventory shit and you like you put herbs into capsules. Like even if you mix like red and green herbs together, it just makes a bunch of tablets. And then you load the tablets up and you can just tap like L1 or R1, whatever it is, and pop a tablet to heal yourself. Like that's how okay, they do so it. Okay, so they're just they're just completely stackable then, right? Stackable. That that's it. Yep. It's just stackable, like one health bar recovery rates. So you just make a bunch of capsules. So if you oh, mix wow. Yeah, okay. unless you get like a first aid kit spray. If you get the spray, that's a full heal. Straight right. up it's full heal. Yeah, no see that's why see that's that's another big change because it reminds me of like two and three you get the case that holds the healing spray and that's like a good item that's like a big item because you can f- hold four healing sprays in that thing at one time and it only takes up one space in your inventory and i'm like oh man yeah that's awesome yeah yeah but here it does it that just makes it completely pointless to have something like uh, invent- inventory management is out the window in re6 and like so that's why i can see why a lot of people have so many problems like re6 feels like that you stepped into a john woo movie you know like you're, you're like you can like dive backwards shooting and roll around on the ground shooting you can run around and just slide across tables and stuff and I seen you whip doing guns around. And, and yeah. The other day. It reminds me, wasn't there a game? Like, uh, and I think it was John Woo, if I'm not mistaken. There was a game that was very action-paced. You had two pistols, and you would slide across, like, tables oh, like that. it was that. a John Woo game. Yeah, yes. I'm trying to think of the name of it. Yeah, uh, and it was, like, it was kind of a fun game for the moment. I don't think it had a lot of lasting power, though. Like, it wasn't really something to play through. But, um, yeah, there was a game like that I remember playing. Stranglehold, that's it. Stranglehold? Yeah, that's it. I Damn. Just yeah. And it's like the mechanics of this RE6 game remind me of that game. Just the way that you can slide across tables. Hell, even Leon, you can dual wheel pistols. He's got like a little mode where you press triangle or something and like he gets two pistols now. And you're just two pistol shooting shit. And um, yeah, it, it's, it's very. And you know, there's an argument for that escalation with the series because you know 
in the early games, you're playing with the stars members when they're first running into zombies and stuff, and it's a right. new thing. They're like getting more experience, yes. more training for dealing this and handling it. There's supposed to be like a special task force to deal with these things now. And yeah, Chris all. literally I mean, felt- is in a bio terror, like where like terrorist, you know, organization. Like he's like fighting them, like fighting these yeah, like, task force. He's yeah. not going to be <clears throat> like he's not really going to be afraid anymore if he's been doing this for. <clears throat> You know, however long. I think of the what the game span like what almost ten years. Yeah, in different yeah. games. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So yeah, I guess it kind of makes sense, but then at the same time, the game's not really survival horror anymore. No, it's that true. That's, that, yeah, that becomes the that becomes the issue. So yeah. um, it's like just like with Dead Space Three. Dead Space Three was kind of had the same point because. Mm. Um, they tried to make it a little bit survival horror, but it was a little bit because the you were on the, you never played three, have you? I never played two or three. I've only played through and beaten the first one. Okay, you should definitely play two. But three is a hear. more actiony game. Yeah, it's a more actiony game. You're on a frozen planet. Snowstorms kind of white out the screen and everything. And sometimes monsters will come out and you know the necromorphs will come out and just kind of surprise you. Although jump out of the snow and shit and surprise you and everything. So there's a little bit of that feeling of claustrophobia claustrophobia excuse me when you're in a snowstorm mm-hmm. but at the same time there's this new mechanic in the game where you kind of utilize um uh, isaac's abilities as an engineer you can craft weapons and some of the weapons you can create are overpowered say like say you have you ever wanted to put a contact beam on a line gun well you can do it in this game <laughs> <laughs> if you ever wanted to put like i don't know the make something that shoots spikes but that it also freaking explode and like set shit on fire you can do that the game's weapons are highly customizable with the different parts and shit Mm. and it's kind of fun making it but it also makes it so you can tear through these enemies like nothing and then there's a co-op mode in the game you can there's two main characters um there's isaac and there is a security chief a new guy i forget his name because i haven't really played the game that much that often but there's another one and so the game really becomes actually when you start doing like the co-op and everything. So it's kind of, but it's, you can kind of make the same point with Isaac. Like this is Isaac's third outing with the Necromorphs. He's kind of getting used to it. He goes to this planet because he's trying to get rid of the source of the Necromorphs. So he's not really going to be there to be afraid, I guess. But at the same time, the game really doesn't feel like the other two games. It's not survival horror anymore. So I can, I can kind of get that feeling. Yeah, I can see that for sure. Um, <clears throat> it, it it is that thing. Like you, you um, do you keep just putting out the same formula, or do you try and explore? Like I, I do respect Resident Evil Six for trying to step outside the bounds and do something different. I don't think, and I think some of it actually works. Like I was playing with uh, Jesse on normal, uh, the normal difficulty, and we were kind of playing through it, and it's not a bad experience. It can be fun. But then is it a Resident Evil experience? And that becomes the weird thing because even on that that group chat where they're talking about how like, I've seen multiple posts, four on, they're not Resident Evil anymore. But I don't know what that means because like I have feel like there's strong arguments for at least seven 
being a Resident Evil game for sure. And hell, even yeah. five, even though it's action oriented, you still have some of the inventory systems in place and like some of those things there. There that... could be some tense moments, not necessarily scary, mm-hmm. but there can be and some intense moments in that game. Yeah. And I don't remember if it's as actiony as four is with the spin kicks and all that shit. Like it, it does have like more intense, like you said, more intense moments and stuff like that. There is more of a horror element to it because like four four is kind of dreary and like you know you do deal with some monsters and like the not zombies but definitely like people who are almost like zombies but um it's it's very comical with the action almost like it's it's it's, it is that i think five kind of gave it more of a serious turn to the action and uh there's the buddy system which again is interesting in trying to involve co-op and stuff like that. Like I don't think, I don't know, man. I remember enjoying five. I think me and Eric actually played a little bit of five together, if I'm not mistaken. And I think you and Eric did as well, right? Uh, no. Uh, me and um our other friend, our other friend, uh, Juni, we uh we ran through it together. But yeah. Uh, okay, okay. But uh, I remember having a, a a good time with it. Uh, but like. Because, like, everything that, like, if you go back from 4, well, then you're just talking about tank control games. Now, I like, I, I get the argument as well, puzzles and stuff and, like, certain stuff like that. But, like, I would push back against that because I feel like Resident Evil 3 wasn't as heavy with the puzzles as much as, like, maybe 2 oh, or 1. Oh, not nearly. Yeah. Yeah, or 1. 1 was definitely puzzle heavy. Like, I just went back and played 1 Remake. And uh, and I think one remake is actually fairly close to the 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 one. They just actually added a few different things into it. But I mean, it, the only real puzzle I can think of in three is like the um, what was it? The music box? It was at the top of the clock tower. I forget what. It, yeah, there was like that, the and then I um, there was that one, and I think there was a puzzle with the uh, city hall or whatever it is, where you find the um. You find the different little crystals, but I think you had to set them in a certain way, or something. Yeah, like that. for the the open the the gate to the park. Yeah, yeah there was yeah. there was a few, but it's not it's not like one was like one. You can almost see them slowly step away from puzzles from one from Resident Evil One on. There's like a slow, like even Resident Evil Two Remake. Arguably, there's not really any puzzles in that game. Arguably, it's more of fetch quest find these things and then put them in the thing. There are some like puzzly things in there. It's not that there's no puzzles, but there's not not like like one when I play one remake, there was an interesting one where you had to enter in a code to get into a room. But you had to look there was a pool table with a bunch of pool balls on it, like a little you know, and they had different colors and numbers. And then there was like tables with candles lit that had different patterns on the shadows made. Like it was a fairly intricate puzzle. And figuring it out was cool. However, like that that's a legit puzzle. Yeah. There's nothing like that in the recent Resident Evils that I've played. Yeah. Nothing that goes that far into it. Now, seven, seven tried to bring a little more puzzles, but the, but I think the biggest puzzle thing was it, if I remember right, was with that uh, one of the guys, one of the um, one of the members of the family. Yeah, um, with um, 
I forget his the name. Son. I forget yeah, his name. The son. I'm trying to think of his name as well. Mm-hmm. Um But he had a bit where he would stick you in a room and you had to solve a few puzzles to get out. Right. The mm-hmm. the big part of that puzzle though was when you watched a VS tape, VHS tape of the other guy that he caught and yes. then you kind of figured out how to do the puzzle and everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was like the biggest puzzle. And then the other thing was they had the two little puzzles with the shadow, the shadow puzzles where you had to turn yeah. the little object. Yeah, but I'd argue that's not really a puzzle. I mean, you literally just got to turn that around so it makes the shape. Like it, it, right. then that becomes an argument of what exactly are we talking about with puzzles too? Like it's it's more of a just a a thing. I don't know. But um yeah, I don't I don't know. It's it's an interesting discussion to have uh to me i accept them all as resident evil games we could we could probably we could probably sit here and talk for a while on just that like what is a resident evil game yeah because yeah. that that is a very obscure um of a thing we might even maybe just do an episode on it down the road you know and start really picking apart all the games because uh, some of them i don't really remember like i've played in beat zero i but it's been so long i don't remember resident evil zero that much um, and Resident Evil Zero actually came out a while after, I think, right? Wasn't it like um, after four, or was it before four that Resident Evil Zero came out? Because didn't trying. it initially come out on the GameCube, if I'm not mistaken? It did originally come out on the GameCube, I think. But it so was. did four. Four came out on yeah. the GameCube as well, and I don't remember which one was first. No, it was, uh, yes, it was. Four, I mean, Zero originally came out on GameCube. I thought it did, yeah. It came out in uh, 2002. Mm. Yeah, and Four, I think Four came out fairly close to it, actually, now that I'm thinking about it. 2002, that's that's pretty close to when Four came out. Yeah, I think so. Oh, actually, it's uh, Resident Evil 4 came out in 2005. So actually, Zero came out first. Ah, okay, okay. okay. So then, yeah, so then you had, uh, okay, so you had Code Veronica, then you had Zero, then you flip over and you get the craziness of Resident Evil 4. Interesting. And you know, they were trying to do an action-y type of Resident Evil way back and they turned it into Devil May Cry. So like, there's, they definitely had a hard-on for making these Resident Evil games more of an action-y type of game. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a, oh it's yeah, a definitely. Because that was the plan from the beginning. That's how uh, that's how Devil May Cry got started. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. exactly. So uh, I don't know. It, it's pretty interesting. Um, and I've definitely been going through Resident Evil games. Um, the last one I just put down. Uh, which one was that? I think was that one that I just was the last Resident Evil I just played. But I got Code Veronica now, and uh, so I'm planning to play that. But I think I want to go through the Evil Within. So I started that up, but I've started that game up uh, like at least two or three other times. So this time though, I'm gonna try and stick with it. I really want to see it through. I really want to see what the Evil Within's all about. So I still got, I still have Eric's copy of Evil Within that he let me borrow because he wanted me to play through it. He mm-hmm. wanted to watch me play through it because mm-hmm. he was all like, "Oh, Kevin, play through this for me. It's too spooky." <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm a, uh, but no, I was playing through it. And I'm going to be honest, I kind of felt like it was boring. It was a little boring to me because it's like, like, yeah, like there's a lot of gore and there's like a lot of creepy shit in it, but I didn't really feel scared while playing it or anything. And it's like, I don't know. I got, uh, you know, you know, it's not even about being scared because Resident Evils don't really scare me either. Well, one thing I enjoy about Resident Evil is the colorfulness of the world that you're in. Like it's, it's just a fun 
like a little zany, a little B movie ish, but also like, you know, especially two remake was so beautiful of a game. Like mm-hmm. it, it's just, the things looked great. Everything popped, but then you still had that. Yeah. It's raccoon city and umbrella and all these like fun elements that, that, that are fun to explore. And I think yeah. that might have been what's pushed me away from the evil within a couple of times is because I don't know if the world is as interesting. And like, like I don't know, there's a personality to the series of Resident Evil that always draws me in. I mean, there's mainstay characters like Chris and Jill and, you know, Wesker and all that kind of stuff that you know yeah. and you've seen in other things that like... There's something there, and Evil Within, I think, is trying to build, or I would think the goal would be to try and build that. So I am I'm definitely want to give it a good go-through and stick yeah, with it. I want to see of, where it unfolds. Yeah, that's kind of what I meant. I said it wasn't scary or anything, but it... I mean, like you said, the Resident Evil games aren't really scary, but they get your heart going. That's what I meant. Like mm-hmm. they, they, those are they get some jump scares in there that kind of get you. Mm-hmm. They, get, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes and like you can get put in some tense situations. But I don't know. When I was playing through Evil Within, and granted, I think I only played through like um, I want to say just I just kind of got almost past the beginning part because I got to. Um, I think to the, like the second boss or something like that, from what I remember. So I, could, I probably should give it another shot and everything, but I just found the world very disinteresting, like you were talking about. And I'm, I don't know, I guess maybe I should just give it another shot and see what they're trying to build with it, because they do have a second game now. And maybe the story gets a lot more interesting as I go on. Mm. Okay, okay. Um, let's see. Um, oh, Sekiro. Yeah, I, I played through yeah. that again. Um, I picked up your file and just beat it. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I didn't really. So I did the other choice. So you get two choices. I did not realize that the second choice ends the game much earlier. Um, yeah, to do the uh, the 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 sure ending. Yeah, the sure ending. Yeah, the sure ending. Yep, I, I didn't do that before. So you actually fight Emma. I was actually planning on doing that in my um that on that file anyways. I was like, you mm-hmm. know what, I'm gonna go for the short ending. You get the bad ending first. Yeah, yeah. So that yeah. way so that way I went out play through it again on my own, I'll go for the good ending and everything. So mm-hmm. yeah, I was actually gonna go for that because I know it's the shorter run. But Yeah, it know. is. It takes out basically the last level, which is like one of the best levels of the game is the Fountainhead Palace. Uh, Fountainhead Palace is a really beautiful like layout level design like it's really cool it was one of my favorite places to explore doing the sure ending you just don't get that <laughs> so um, but it, it was interesting doing the sure ending and like uh, fighting uh, Ishin the, the sword saint and Emma uh, you fight them back to back and, and it's actually an easier path because if you take the other path when you fight Ishin, it's a four four stage fight. If you fight it in the short ending, it's a three stage fight. Right. So it's actually easier uh to get through and do. Um yeah. but it that was, has easier owl fight in it too. No, because you, you, don't, you, don't, you fight, don't fight Isle and you don't fight Yeah, Isle. you don't fight Isle and one. Yeah, because yep. you side with him. Yep, yep. So you don't even yeah. have to fight him. Um, it was it was fun going back. I forgot how good the game is, and um, it's really fucking fantastic. And like, 
the Guardian Ape is still one of my favorite fights. It's such a fun fight. And um the game oh, looks fantastic. I think yeah. I would have to it would be one of those games I'd really have to dedicate my time to to get used to it because I think you saw it when I was we were streaming it the other day, but I kinda got Dark Souls on the brain when I play it, and it's not a Souls game. No. <laughs> yeah. It's not. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, it plays completely different. You're right. So um I agree. Uh but Sekiro was definitely a good thing to go back and shout out to Aaron. He they they used to talk so much. I'll never beat this game. Oh, it's too hard. Blah blah blah. And now the motherfucker beat the game. So <laughs> exactly. If you just put the time into it, you'll right? beat you just- it. It's and honestly, it's less intimidating than what it is. Like he was sitting there messaging like, oh, I beat him on like my third try. And it's like, well, yeah, bro. Right? Like if you just fucking put into it or if you do your research, you know, if you're that worried about the boss fight, check it out. Look at different things and whatever. Yeah. Now, Jesse's still a little too scared to do it and he's not ready to do it. Maybe one day I hope Jesse will do it and enjoy the the feeling of beating Sekiro. But, um, yeah, um, I think I looked, I think it's only like, it's like it's like less than twenty percent of people actually beat have beaten Sekiro that have like put the game on as far as far to the uh, the trophies, uh, the yeah, trophy list. Far the because you can look at the trophy for uh, beating, beating the, the game, last right? boss. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, it's like I think it's like I think it's only like thirteen some odd percent, but I could be wrong about that. But I, I'm not, I think actually it's like thirteen some odd percent. Which is like, whoa, that's pretty low. <laughs> what's the uh, what's the percentage for the Ashura ending? Have you looked at that trophy? I didn't. I didn't. I'd have to look back at it. Yeah, I just yeah, got it. I'm um, curious if, if if more people have gone for that ending. Let me see. I'm gonna see if I can't. I can just pull it up right here on my app and see what um what the what the percentage is because I do find that kind of stuff interesting. Let's see. Um, we've got trophies here. Oops. Oh, let me see. Recently played Sekiro. Oops. Where is... You're doing that. Let me pull up the list of all of the direct games because I'm not going to remember them all. No, yeah. Because yeah, I want to go through some of them with you. They got announced. Oh, okay. Yeah, for the Nintendo? Yeah, for the direct. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. Okay, I think I'm... Uh... Uh, well, it keeps bringing me to buy it because I don't I don't own it actually. I just um, I've been using using a disc copy. So, how do you check your trophies on this shit? Uh, there should be a tab at the bottom that says trophies. From from what I remember. No. Oh wait, there it is. Okay, wait, no, I don't think that's it. Because it's like view game. Oh, that's uh that's one thing I can talk about right now, as a matter of fact, is um I did start up Bioshock two. Ah, all right. Never played through Bioshock two. Bioshock two is um I like Bioshock two. I think I might like it a little bit more than I like one. And I think that might be a little bit of a controversial statement for Bioshock fans, because I think uh, Bioshock 2 was... How dare you? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think Bioshock 2 was a little bit divisive, if I want to remember right. Uh, not to say that people didn't like it, but I think people were a little divided on uh, which one was better. Like a lot of, But I think I like 2 a little bit better. I played the hell out of 2's uh, multiplayer. There was a multiplayer mode in 2, 
And it was actually a lot of fun because you could use the plasmids to like set up traps and shit. And they had like a lot of crazy different weapons and everything. And I played it a lot back on the PS3. Yeah, I'm really enjoying too. Um, I actually really enjoy the drill uh, melee in it. Yeah. That's actually pretty fun. Um, and it actually does have a bit of a better difficulty than one does as far as putting on the harder difficulty. But um, it's still not um, super hard, uh, especially because you got the, um, what you call it, those uh, vital chambers that you pop out of. Now, yeah. you can turn them off. I don't. It's part of the game. I haven't turned them off. But um, you can turn them off, I guess, for an extra difficulty spike. Oop, there we go. Just found it. All right. Um, the Shura ending, Okay. Very rare, fourteen point eight percent. Wow! So it's about about the same as the 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 good ending. Yeah, other ending. Yeah. Yep, fourteen point eight percent on both actually on the Ishin Ashan Ashina, and um, yeah, they both get the um about fourteen percent. Uh, travel to all areas of the game. That's thirty five percent trophies mm. so yeah that's um huh that's interesting um, i think that lends itself to uh i guess the different style of a uh, secular i'm not gonna say the difficulty because i mean i guess in some ways the game is more difficult than dark souls because you can't see them in any help it's not oh, like wait. you can grind that means to... you can actually grind uh, uh, hold on that's actually kind of wrong um sword saint Ishin Ashina, so the Sword Saint one, that's the other ending. That's 26%. Oh, so the Shura okay. ending actually has a lower percentage rate of completion than the the regular way. Uh, fighting the Sword Saint is the other ending. So um, that's interesting. Now, you can actually grind. What you can do is you can buy a mask. you got to find the three parts of the mask. And uh, once you get the mask... You can trade in five. You can just kill enemies and get your levels up to like level five, and you could trade it in for one strength point. Uh, strength point is typically what you get for beating a boss, but you yeah. can actually grind strength. Um, Was that something they had in the game at the beginning? Yeah, or is that mm -hmm. a new? Thing? That's always, that's always oh, been there. Okay. That's always been there. It, now you gotta almost go through most of the game to get it. So that's why I say like it's it's you're not completely wrong, but it is technically wrong. Okay. Um, and especially for new game plus playthroughs, you can just grind on those okay, ends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so that's mm. so it's an item you don't really complete until late game. Yeah, yeah. Because I think I think you got to get three parts. One of the things you can buy off the bat, like very early, you could buy one piece of it. Uh, the other two pieces, I don't exactly remember how to get them or where. I have them though. Like I got the mask. I, I did have it on because I reloaded my playthrough. And, and I'm in the new game plus of my original playthrough. Because I went and got everything. In my, my first playthrough, Sekiro, I got every bead. I got uh, beat every boss. I did everything that I could before I beat it. Other than, of course, the sure ending. Because, you know, you, you got to replay the whole game again to do the other stuff. So, um, I did all that. And that's... Um, and also too like beating all the bosses you could go and beat some of the little mini bosses and get the beads and increase your health and posture 
and uh, bump that up as well too. So, uh, yeah. but you can't you can't actually grind that though. You can grind strength. You can make yourself stronger. So that, that well, it's is, not like uh like Dark Souls. Like if you get stuck in Dark Souls, you can go around the level and you can grind and you can level up and make yourself yeah. stronger until yeah. you get strong enough to mm. to beat an area, to beat the boss, right? Yeah. But you can't really do that. Like not like like you can in a Souls game, right? And you can't co-op yeah. and get somebody to come and help you. Yeah, that's like the that. biggest my, that's the biggest problem I think a lot of people have. Like um, like Aaron and them, I think the biggest problem they had was the fact that they couldn't call help um to get it from the the nerds podcast because um when you play two players on dark souls that's basically easy mode because like you can easily have one person distract the boss and the other person light the boss up and take turns on the boss and if you're both if you're both you know good good at it yeah like if you were especially if one person is like your friend is like a high level character and you use codes to i mean passwords to uh to summon each other and like your friend is like a high level. He's on like new game plus three or some shit. You can summon him to your world and you can be your, this will be your first game. And mm. he'll be, the game will try to scale him down like with yeah. health and everything, mm. but his mm. weapon will still do the same kind of damage. Yeah. Right. So because that's the weapon scaling doesn't really um, get solved. So it does make it easier. But if like, me and Eric, play, I played through Eric with uh with Eric on Dark Souls three and everything. We both every time we do it, we both start make new characters, because even though it's a little easier, it's still a little more challenging because we both have weak weapons, we're both weak characters yeah. and everything, and it's it makes it a lot a little bit challenging, but it's not too challenging because mm -hmm. we can still run through the game pretty quick. So yeah, I, I see what you're talking about there. Well, not, I mean, not even that though. That's actually not exactly what I'm talking about too. Like. Um... I noticed this in Bloodborne when me and my brother played Bloodborne together. I I didn't play. I soloed Bloodborne for the main story, but in some of the Chalice dungeons, me and my brother played around together in. But I wanted to solo Bloodborne, so me and him just did the um, Chalice dungeons together. And um, one of the things that's easy to do is, in this, you can't do it with all bosses, right? The big giant bosses that's a little harder to do, but like your single bosses that are walking around a stage. You can easily have one player hit the enemy, and then that enemy just kind of like pay them attention, and the yeah, other yeah. character hits the enemy, and then when he starts focusing his attention on the other character, then you distract and the other one. And you could do this pinball, like this ping pong back and forth, and kill a boss fairly easy that way with two players you or can. more. Yeah. So then that's more specifically what I'm talking about, regardless of you know stronger weapons or whatever having two players now the the game the base like playing through the levels i would say that may not be easier i i, I think there's an argument to be made that the difficulty may not be as harder or easier with two players but i would say boss battles actually do get easier with more than one player um for sure so in uh, sekiro to the point being made with you know my buddies over there with the nerds um they don't they didn't have that option like they did in the soul series so in Sekiro you have to beat the boss by yourself good luck period yeah and there's no yeah. help there's no distract like no it's a really different type of game and uh, it's a really good game uh, I would like to see more games done in a style similar to that um they can deviate from it. I think one thing that would be nice for Sekiro is I wish there were um, different options on weapons 
Um, the prosthetics are kind of that, but I feel like weapon you choice is pretty. You can't lacking. collect like different weapons, like, but they're all kind of the, like. Can't you get a spear and you can get a uh, no, a long... no, no. They're no? all prosthetic stuff. They're not weapons, oh. and they're tied to spirit emblem usage. The uh, axe, the spear, the flame vent, all that stuff. That is not weapons you can switch a sword. You're only that sword you get in the beginning of the game is the same sword you use at the end of the game. Don't and, you get a larger katana too? Is that no, is that still a prosthetic no. weapon? No, yeah, it is a prosthetic weapon. That uh, is a it is a poison katana that you get, and it's a prosthetic weapon. Uh, so again, any new weapon is just your prosthetic arm. Ah, okay. You the sword you get at the beginning of the game is the sword you beat the game with. No, I'm sorry. Let me back up. You do get a sword called the Mortal Blade, okay? But that is not um you don't equip that sword and use it. That is actually an attack you get where you can do these two giant slashes and it takes up like three or four spirit emblems or something like that. But the Mortal mm -hmm. Blade is something that you're supposed to keep sheath, and it's the only thing that can kill an immortal. So, like, um, like when you go into the the monk temple in um, Sekiro, there's these uh, corrupted immortal monks that that are there, and if you slice them up with your base sword, you can take their health down and quote unquote kill them, but they just come right back up. Yeah. But if you have the the mortal blade, when you kill them you get a death blow option to stab them with the mortal blade and then they will actually die. That's what that centipede thing is that kind of, kind of comes out. Yes. Of them. Yes. Yeah. That's that that's giving them that immortality. They found a way, but it like corrupts them. It turns them like dark, like the guardian ape is another one too. Like when you kill him, you cut his head off and you can use the spear prosthetic to rip the centipede out of his neck hole when you're fighting him in the second form. And it does massive posture damage. And um, when you finally kill him, you kill that centipede thing. So um, that's the thing that's kind of tied to bringing them to life. But the way that you come back to life and Kuro um, is um, through the dragon heritage. And it's some kind of like dragon blood or something that's passed down. Like some, I think in a thing, there's like somebody who has to always hold on to this immortality. And there are people who are trying to take it like from Kuro or find a way to use it for their own purposes. And that's kind of the concept here is just a the discussion of immortality. Um, so, uh, interesting game fun it has a little more of a narrative than the than dark souls it was fun going back to sekiro and um yeah i think it's definitely a game worth the time to play bosses are very interesting uh the game itself is fantastic so and that, that's kind of gonna probably wrap it up for me as far as my week um I kind of glazed over it. I do want to touch back on Bioshock 2. So Bioshock 2, you were talking about how you really enjoyed the game. You think you like it better than 1. I can understand where you're coming from with that. I, I do think there's certain elements that do feel better than 1. Uh, a few things of note. I like the hacking better. Uh, hacking kind of stops the game in 1. Uh, in 2, it's just the needle that moves and you time the, the, the presses. But you're still yeah. kind of in game with it. Um, I also like that in two with the hacking, 
you can hack if you hit the needle in the blue areas. Then, like for instance, when you um when you check the um the health stations, if you hit the blue icon, they drop out a health kit. So like you can get rewards for hacking that way. If you hack um the vending machines and you hit the right the blue placements and the green placements right, uh, you actually get like ammunition and stuff like that or items. Yeah. So um, that's a pretty cool function to hacking. And again, it's much faster. It's not like a stop and I've got to do this whole puzzle thing of twisting the tubes around so that the liquid thing goes through it. It's just this like needle thing. And then you actually have a gun that you can shoot like turrets and stuff and then just hack them that way. Like I actually like that much better. Yeah, it is. It's. I remember. Uh, I need to play it again because I haven't played it in a long time. So there's not a lot I remember about it clearly, mm. but I do remember the feeling of the combat just feeling better too. I feel like the combat felt. The better. combat feels fairly similar to me, um, as far as like when you hit enemies and the reactions and all that kind of stuff. Um, they do seem to take damage better. They're like I've noticed with the nail gun, I've been doing it like headshots fairly consistently on enemies and I'm like one shotting enemies and I'm on the hardest difficulty too. And I'm kind of one and I kind of like that that they're they like if you hit them in the body it doesn't do nearly as much damage. You hit them in the head it does a lot more. And BioShock 1 had that feature, but it definitely feels like I it feels better doing it in 2. Like I don't think it registered completely every time you could try to do a headshot in 1. I think there was a lot of margin of error even though you're aiming uh, icon is right on the head. It, it 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 didn't always register the right uh, damage, but I, I could be wrong. It just that's kind of what it feels. Cause I'm noticing more often these headshots I'm taking out in two than I was doing in one. Um, so that's that's kind of interesting. Um, another thing with two, I like the drill. I like the melee with the drill instead of just like a wrench. The drill thing is like. Because there's at one point in the game, like I, I used the wrench pretty good amount in one, but um, it's um, it's not as fun to use as the drill, and the drill really can take out enemies. It's very reliable. Uh, the wrench is not. After a while in the game, you, you get enough ammo and stuff to where you just you're, you're shooting now, and the wrench is kind of like a whatever. But the drill, the drill is always a cool, safe option to use. You can shock somebody and drill the shit out of them, you know? Yeah. And uh, that's always kind of fun. And uh, they're even using it to like, oh, I had to knock down a wall and uh, blow that out and use the drill to, you know, do that. So um, that's been uh, that's been pretty cool. But, um, you know, electricity, uh, the um, fire and... Um, telekinesis they all kind of work very similar those are the only ones i've unlocked so far you know there's a lot of stuff that still feels straight from one which is fine it's not a problem but they've definitely seemed to tighten up things like the hacking and stuff like that all that stuff feels much better and is not as much of a let me stop the game and do this puzzle like uh the, like even when you're doing the little needle marks you're still kind of in game you can see what's going on and you just click the timing and boom you're done like taking yep. over a camera is literally just two needle presses and I'm done. That's much better, you know, because it got kind of tedious 
doing the fucking tube puzzles on Bioshock 1. Um, so I like that 2 fixed that. 2, two tighten up a lot of the mechanics. And as far as story goes, um, it's interesting right now um, that you, you, you're discovering about this lady, uh, Lamb, who was a psychologist, who came to Rapture, and it looks like through her psychology and like talking and dealing with people, she kind of created almost a uh, a coup to overtake Andrew Ryan, um, yeah. in this time, and um, she definitely seems to have some kind of maybe hypnotic trance in some of the people in Rapture because she seems to be able to control them and send them out to attack you in points, especially. And also, I like the. Um, I kind of like the little sister thing, but I can see it kind of getting a little old. It's just like an action placement, I guess. Um, but like, I do like that you can pick up a little sister, you adopt her, and then you can uh, find certain like dead body splicers to extract Adam from. And then you can choose to rescue or harvest the little girl, just like in the first one. And that's that's pretty cool. They added a little extra onto that. And then apparently if you save all the little sisters in a room, big sister comes to fight you. And it's like a, she's like a flipping ninja fucking scuba, scuba. So you haven't met, you haven't met the big sister yet, huh? No, I have. I killed like two of them already. Okay. Yeah. All right. So I thought maybe you hadn't actually fought one, but yeah, they're, they're crazy. The, Mm -hmm. the big sisters are crazy. Yeah. I think the first big sister actually killed Mm -hmm. without dying. The second big sister killed me like three times before I finally got her. <laughs> so, <clears throat> yeah, that's uh, but it, it's um, it's 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 been fun going back and playing through uh Bioshock and playing through the Rapture again, and um, I definitely find it interesting. I I, I really do like the the things they play with. I think it's actually topical for today, as far as just this city. Because Andrew Ryan constantly refers to like the government and refers to people like that and these these like overstretching arms of control as like parasites and like kind of looks disdainfully down at poor people and stuff too. Like they always got their hands out for stuff and yeah. he has this kind of look at scientists and um, people who have these visions for the future and like capitalism in and of itself is like this kind of way of of like the the best way to run it and you you strive for yourself the strong survive type of deal and it's it's just fascinating the like the way that's gone down because you can like shit you can almost see in today's politics uh you know like another civil war on the brink and a succession uh from the united states could like especially under like trump and stuff like that's that shit was talked about you know, like in in yeah. today's time, I don't know if that ever actually happened, but it has definitely been on the forefront of things, like especially with podcasting and stuff and the influx of information and knowledge. Those Bioshock game, Bioshock games, the themes that they hit on are very topical uh, to today. Yeah, yeah, because it's a it's, the thing about this like. 20 years ago or something well not even 20 years ago like maybe even 30 years ago because like the think that there would be a group of people like a big group of people in the united states talking about like succession probably wouldn't even have been a thought i don't mm-hmm. feel like mm-hmm. like it wouldn't have been anything 
to even think about. But now we're here at this point mm-hmm. with, like you said, like the, the influx of information and like the advent of the digital age, it's like created a lot of uh, influx of ideas and just like free thinking. And we're seeing a, cl- a lot of clash of these ideals in the country. And like the, the other issue though, is that there's a lot of ideas and not as many hard facts because the problem is we don't have a way to verify a lot of information because there's so much information and some of it is straight up lies and some of it's truth and you Mm -hmm. really got to dig through and try and find what is yeah and or or there's some people who will look at a problem and they'll have a fact they'll do whatever research but oh I, i did this but like but wait a second like in science and stuff too like if you look at it from a different perspective all that shit you did is kind of wrong. Like when you're looking at statistics, you can look at it and say like, oh, like, you know, 50% of these people did this. So that means that people like to do this. Well, if they only sampled 20 people and 10 people like to do that, well, it's not representative of 300 million people that live in America, (laughs) you know? Like, but people will run to stats or do things like that to try and push narratives out and it's not the truth and so like when you when you go into rapture and it's this place where they feel the dis like they feel angry like especially andrew ryan he feels like upset they're they're parasites that are like we are these like smart genius we built this city underwater and it's just our utopia away from that. And we've done all this like gene splicing stuff to create like the best type of people, but then created something that addicted people. And in his arrogance, he ended up destroying the whole city in and of itself right. in his pursuit of greatness. And that's kind of the tragedy of Rapture where it could maybe have been a decent society where people were free from like censorships and government controls and stuff like that to explore ideas and and things like that but he also was doing it in a very dangerous way where they would like almost nazi shit experiment on people without any regard for morality like they were above it and that's some of the shit that you see there as you're exploring rapture in the city so yeah very he's got a very utilitarian mm -hmm. uh way of doing things like you said there's a lot of there's a lot of different overtones there's overtones of imperialism utilitarianism Mm -hmm. and things like that capitalism like you said it's Mm -hmm. that it's really great the way that they they wrote it and they Mm -hmm. were able to blend these different things yeah for sure and and it still holds up today so um that's what's really uh pretty cool about it and it really makes me think when i finally go back and get to bioshock infinite how much I wonder how much of that game's gonna stick out as jumping the shark in a sense from what these two because like these two games they deal with the supernatural in that you affect your genetic makeup and you can shoot electricity out your hands and stuff like that. But that's still in all a very condensed version from Bioshock Infinite that deals with like alternate realities and time traveling and shit. Yeah. And so, like, I'm curious to see how that stands out after I just got done playing one again, and now I'm playing two. And once I get to three, it is a very different game. Like, there's the whole hook system where you're swinging across the city and stuff like that, too. 
Like it it's, really deviates from what one and two are. Yeah, it does, but not in a bad way. It kind of yes, it's kind of refreshing in the way that it's different. It's very uh, yeah. refreshing. Yes, I agree one hundred percent. I'm not trying to say it's a bad thing. I'm just curious how it will stand out to me when I jump to three because it's been a long time since I played through it, and I played through a beat three like years ago. So yeah. But anyways, I'm on my trip on Bioshock two. Can't stream it. Sorry. Um, it's all blocked. I got the remastered version, and that's still blocked. It doesn't let me stream from my PlayStation Five at all. Uh, they block all the content, gameplay, cutscenes, everything. It's all blocked. Yeah, I think that's got something to do with the EULA of when ga- those games came out. Because, like I said, mm-hmm. the like the PS, you can't stream from a PS3. I'm not sure if you. I don't know if you can uh, stream from uh, Xbox 360 like that. I don't know if they can do. They let you do it or not. But I know a PS3 you can't because streaming was like a new thing and like a lot of people were against it. Mm-hmm. To, and they wanted to like protect their content and everything. Mm-hmm. And I think now there's like uh, a lot of protection. Like they, they were found ways to work around it and they kind of embraced the streaming. But mm-hmm. yeah. Well, yeah, it's like another function of marketing, and that kind of gets us into our topic, actually. Um, Because you're right, Twitch has become, and streaming has become more accepted because it's basically viral marketing, in a sense. You get somebody to play your game and gets a lot of people talking about it. Like, I think finally, many, not all, there's still some developers like Nintendo and Atlas that seem to fight streamers. But, um... Overall, most uh, most of these companies have embraced it because it it, put, it helps sales. I yeah. mean, just because somebody watches somebody play it doesn't well, mean that person's like, oh, well, I don't have to buy this anymore. You know, like that's not – if somebody was that on the fence about your game, they weren't probably going to buy it anyway. Now, yeah, movies, if you were to stream a movie, that's different. <laughs> yeah, right. that's, that's when you Because when you buy a movie, you're buying the license to view it anyway. So if you get to view it on somebody's stream, then there's no real reason for you to actually kind of go out and buy it if you don't. Yes. You know, unless you want to rewatch the movie or something. Yes. But yeah. a game is an experience. You're playing it. Like, just yeah. you watching it. And like, okay, for instance, good example. I didn't mention this at all either. But I beat, uh, I'm all weak, but we'll bleed it into this. I beat Castlevania. Uh, Symphony of the Night. Oh, yeah, that's right. You posted it up in our, our mm-hmm. uh, Facebook group. Yes. Yeah, I saw it. Yeah, and one of the things like that I think you commented on and uh, Jesse had talked to me about too because uh, I jumped on and talked to him on a stream and he was talking to me while I was playing Castlevania. And uh, one of the things uh, my man Jonathan shout out to is they were kind of, y'all were kind of taken aback by the approach I took at one of the boss fights. Where I use the sword to kind of constantly teleport to keep dodging the lightning attacks and stuff like that when he did it. Yeah, I think it was the uh, the Midotar, the Mito, like the Galamoth, Galamoth, or something like that. The giant one with the scepter and whatever. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, we're kind of like, oh, see, like, like that, like that was my approach to it. And and you can watch different people play a game and they have different ways, like. And there's a different way that when you finally play the game that you'll deal with it. And it's fun playing the game. Like watching a game does not take away from playing a game. Yeah, because people have different approaches to these things. Exactly. You're only the second person I've seen fight that boss that way. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. With like out trying to go for the head. Because like I think a lot of people figure it out that the head is like his big weak spot. Mm -hmm. Because that boss is like really hard without like going for the head. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Yeah, he has a lot the second going person on. Yeah, he has a lot going on with that. My first strategy was actually to uh, do the Hellfire teleport. And what I was doing was I would shoot three fireballs and then teleport in between his legs. And then I would attack him and then teleport out. But it became a little too uh, inconsistent to keep doing that. Yeah. And so, but I noticed that, I, in fact, it was an accident that I teleport hit. And I noticed that the lightning struck, but I teleport hit and it didn't, it didn't hurt me. And I was like, oh. Yeah. And then I noticed that if you get the timing right, you can just keep teleporting and you'll dodge attacks. Yeah. So I was like, because you got a little bit of invincibility frame. Yes, you got some invincibility frame because you got it with the hellfire shit too. Like when you, when you stop to shoot the hellfire, um, that little spell, that's actually like shit, like a ten second animation of straight invincibility frames. <laughs> like you cannot be hit out of that once you activate the spell. You're right. just invincible. Mm-hmm. That actually helped me in a few boss fights, but it just wasn't as practical for this boss fight. And uh, the other way was much, much more efficient. And that's actually how I took down Dracula as well. Um, that, that method, though, does not work for, like, it doesn't work well with smaller bosses that can kind of jump around the screen. Like, if you're fighting Richter, that's not the best method to teleport hit. I mean, you could probably get a few hits off that way. But it's like, he could still jump all around the screen. But for big bosses that are just doing a lot of, like, shit in the screen... Yeah, you can kind of keep moving and keep yourself from getting hurt. So, But anyways, the point of it is there's different styles to it. And with Twitch, it highlights those things. And people connect and make communities off of those things. And they're great marketing tools. What we're going to talk about today is what exactly do companies... There's, there's There's a line, and we've talked about in a previous episode of Corporations Evil. And uh, a lot of times you look at big corporations who become just money giants and they're just devoid of any morality. The only way to make them behave morally is to like punish them if they don't. It's almost like a kid who just doesn't know. So um, looking at that, we're looking at the marketing and stuff. And one of the things that kind of spawned this off was I think I saw it shared around somewhere a while back. People share stuff like this all the time. Uh, but there was something that was shared on uh, an old Mortal Kombat poster. And as you know, Mortal Kombat came under fire about like it being for kids and they're playing this ultra-violent game and it birthed the rating system that we have. And a lot of people say this about it, and I think I even have as well, that, well, that's not really for kids, it's for whatever. But when you are a company that put out a, a poster marketing your game where you have three Mortal Kombat characters, I think like Kano, Raiden, and one other one, and they're kind of like coming out of the arcade system and grabbing two kids that look like they're around the age of 10. Yeah, they're preteen kids, for mm-hmm. sure. For sure. Yeah. Like that's clearly aimed at children, point blank, period. You know, like you can't really get around that. Um, you know, later on, no, it's it's rated M. All the games after once the rating system started at M, seventeen and older. So, and um, there's a lot of games. Like another one too, we can bring up. Um, just in the same thing as like Conquer's Bad Fur Day. 
And uh, yeah. Conker's Bad Fur Day is like a cute, cuddly little squirrel character. And like on first glance, you might look at that, especially as like a parent or whatever. Oh, it's like a little kid's game. Maybe my kid will like this. And it's really adult-rated content. Now, I don't think, again, that the people who made it were like, yeah, and like my nine-year-old kid will love this game. You know? Not when they're putting like, you know, dick jokes, shit jokes you know, I mean, fuck, it starts off with him getting drunk and calling his girlfriend, like all this kind of stuff like that. Like, uh, yeah. I, don't, I don't think it's necessarily trying to be speared at kids, but it's, it's, it's a, it's a weird conversation to have, especially with some of the information I kind of looked up here. Um, before I get into it, Kev, what is your take on, I mean, is there, do you feel like there's a built in when these companies are marketing games, they're expecting sales from minors. They're expecting sales from children. Um, you mean now still? Or uh, back like then and now. Do you think it's changed? Yeah. You can answer kind of both almost in like one. Yeah. Back then, definitely. Because especially before the rating system, because like you said, um, these games were kind of like Mortal Kombat and Doom and like, cause we were the ones that were playing games. We were the first generation to really play games. Our parents didn't really play games. You know, I mean, some of them did, some of them did, but not, it wasn't a common thing, you know? So they had, we were their audience, you know, they, they did a lot of shit to cater to us. And um, there was kind of this bit of a culture. I don't know if you, uh, you're aware of this, but in the when kind of all the nerd pop culture and everything first started kind of becoming popular and everything, some people started wanting to kind of like stigmatize casual gamers and like casual fans of like all the stuff that we like. Because for such a long time, it was a niche thing for us and it felt like our special thing. And marketers kind of, we grew up with them specifically targeting us and we kind of got spoiled to it. We ended up kind of getting spoiled to it. So I think they definitely did it back then. Yeah. But now, uh, I think now there's a lot more awareness in it because now we're the adults. We know these things and everything. And like the rating system is like really there to kind of help guard against it. I'm not going to say like. Um, do you think it's because of that? Or do you think that there's like a. Um, let's see. Um, I'm trying to think of the right way to word it, but it's not coming to mind. But basically you can like. You can point the finger at the parents a little easier now. For instance, <clears throat> new, um, let's just say Mortal Kombat. New movie trailer came out, Mortal Kombat. That's kind of in a talk where we talk about the poster. New Mortal Kombat game comes out, and there's an advertisement for it that uh, has all, all the fatalities. Let's check it out. Yeah. And um, it's a YouTube video that has over a million hits that your son can easily access because it's on fucking YouTube. Right. Um, as a company, I'm not responsible if your kid watches that. It's on YouTube. There's tons of stuff on YouTube. But it's accessible for children. Now, look, mm -hmm. do I think a company should be held responsible? No. You know, they, 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 they got a point, you know. And now that things have shifted more to that, like, honestly, it's almost wasting your money if you try to pay for TV ads now or radio ads, maybe a podcast. But a lot of podcasts are adult-oriented. It's people talking. Like, yeah, kids probably will find podcasts, but it's free form. Like, mm -hmm. they're not... 
explicitly marketed to children to listen to, um, I don't know, like a Joe Rogan, you know? Yeah. The, so, um, I it's mean, interesting you brought up YouTube with, uh, with the marketing and the ads and everything, because if you remember not too long ago, YouTube gotten a whole lot of shit about that, about the, a lot of, uh, underage kids, uh, being on their yes. parents, um, yeah. YouTube accounts yeah, and watching shit that they weren't supposed to. Mm-hmm. And, YouTube had to do to do things about it. To well, try to... they said they felt like they had to do things about it, but there's yeah. actually another argument to be had of if they should like it, because like at what point are like how much is Google and them supposed to be the parent? Like if if they if they are explicitly like if I have a child account right and have an account for my kid, this is this is my son or my daughter's YouTube account. And it's their name yeah. listed, they're 12, they're 10, they're 8, whatever age. And like, okay, here we go. They have it. And then they're looking at some kid video. And then the suggested video comes up of the Mortal Kombat Fatality trailer. That's bad on Google, right? Yeah, it is. But if my right? son signs out of his account and signs into mine and starts looking at adult content, that's not Google's fault. Or if I just like put my account on my son's, you know, YouTube thing and let him go to town on YouTube, that's not YouTube's fault, especially if they have systems in place to be used. Right. That's what I was going to, I was about to get it, get into Mm -hmm. Like they have um, parental controls, right? They even have a whole separate app that's made for kids, YouTube kids or whatever. I think that's what it's called that, that uh, specifically Gatorade catered towards you know younger audiences and things like that and that's what's kind of google's argument when they were coming up with this but you know it wasn't satisfactory to a lot of the parents that were upset and everything so but i do get your point i do get your point with that you know because it's hard to you know kind of monitor you can't monitor your kids 24 7 you know and, and be there all the time they're gonna get exposed to it yeah, I think there's a higher rate of children watching porn now than ever before. Because when when I was growing up, it was hard to come across porn. Oh, yeah. Unless you could, like, find, like, your dad's porn or, like, your older brother's porn or some shit. Because that's yeah. how I got introduced to it. Or, you, or you go to somebody's house or something and and their parents pay for the porn channel. And then you happen to come across that channel. And like, oh, shit, it's not blurred out. <laughs> Right, and then they even do that. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm—I know there are kids out there that remember looking at the scrambled freaking porn channels and shit, Mm -hmm. trying to catch Mm -hmm. a glimpse of a freaking titty or something. Yeah, right. Yep, exactly. So that it was—it was tougher then. Now, you know, young people uh, are—you can literally type like a letter or two into a Google search, and you will see nudity and porn and any pornographic images that you want. You just got to click the right links and get all the viruses. So, yeah, like it's yeah, not everybody's hip to how to put parental controls on their 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 search browser, their browsers. Or even if you do put parental controls on the search browser, sometimes those parental controls can be a little aggressive and and like actually make things a little more difficult for kids to access things that are not exactly, you know, not necessarily like bad for them to, to play. Like I made the decision to let my son play around on Devil May Cry. I let him play the game, Devil May Cry 5. There's some mild points of uh, 
uh, you see a girl's ass, but like in the PlayStation version, it's edited out in the cutscenes, um, and it's for a quick second. And uh, but there's no active sexual stuff going on, and even the violence is very animated. They're fighting demon things, and it's really not anything that aggressive. So I let them play around on it. Um, but you know, like technically right. speaking, like you know, that's an M-rated game. And um, I made that decision, though. But with, like, parental controls, they wouldn't see that. So then right. so then the parental controls can sometimes end up being a nuisance. Yeah, it, they, there's no uh, fine-tuning. There's really not, like, a whole lot of fine-tuning you can do with it. Right. Yeah, exactly. It, it can be a little difficult to be more, like, specific about it. So, I mean, there's there's this pros and cons to it, and no system's going to be perfect. So um, does that mean YouTube has their parental system and it's like, they're good luck? No, I mean, they should try to keep working on making it better and more user-friendly and and all those things. But at the same time, I don't know how much you hold them accountable for something that's a free-form platform, you know, like where anybody can post anything. That comes at a cost because people will post anything if right. you let them. So right, if you want the internet to be like uh, free and kind of have like free information on yeah. it, then it kind of comes with a bit of give and take. It's a double edged sword. Yeah, and 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 that's a long way around to come back to exactly like kids being able to access like older marketing because it's funny too, like. I, I like I remember commenting on this with the Avengers movie when it came out with Endgame. There were TV ads that were like check out the trailer on YouTube. Like you had an ad for an ad. Yeah. You know like yeah, it, it's like so it's, it's very meta almost in a way. Like it's it's so crazy. But like advertisements are almost like come like a not they're, they're almost forms of they're forms of entertainment, not even almost. And like you have YouTube channels with millions of views for a commercial that people are looking for, you know? Oh yeah, like the their entire channel, like the 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 kid that does toy reviews. That kid's entire channel is just basically one commercial after yeah. another. Yeah, it's just a commercial, and kids love washing it eating it up and and it's easy to access all that stuff and so like nowadays i don't think you see it as much but one of the things i'm going to bring up is the um federal trade commission uh ftc.gov i went to the site and they had a marketing violent entertainment to children and they had just an interesting little thing so uh, i'm gonna read a few bits out of it and this is kind of a look at the 2000 era and then w w what we just talked about is kind of what we have now with YouTube and easy access and things are shared through Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and stuff like that. And they go through all the news circuits and stuff like that. Back then, there was a lot of like on TV and um, radio and stuff like that. And you kind of see some mild Internet. There's some Internet discussion in here of advertising on Internet stuff. But you can tell even by the report that it's like fairly uncontrollable because like there's one in here where they and i don't know if i'll get to it but they did talk about how like okay the esrb back at this time they were doing these implementing these these rules and they weren't doing the best of job early on 
but you can see how they progressively got better and things are getting better about monitoring what kind of advertisements are on what kind of TV shows and how many of them are like kid based or not or whatever. And like the kind of conversation in this report is kind of talking about like, if my kid's watching Barney should in the commercial break, there be a halo advertisement. Right. You know, like there's um, clearly Barney is not for, and I don't even know if some of the younger people may even know what Barney was, but it's a big purple fucking dinosaur that used to be a kid's show when I was growing up. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if Barney's still around or not, but yeah, yeah it was I basically, a, it, it was, it was on PBS. It was, yes. came on after Sesame Street and it was in the same vein as Sesame Street. He it's loved like you that. and you loved him and that you That shit were... was always so fucking creepy to me. <laughs> Even as a kid. Listen to that fucking song. It's a I giant purple dinosaur. You. You love me. Oh my god. Yeah. Um Yeah. And he talked about having a great big hug and a kiss from me to you or something like that. Or am I mixing that song? I don't remember. But no, it was a crazy you, you got it right. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's that right. shit is hard Yeah. So um definitely. But like, you know, should your Halo commercial be in the Barney show? You know, like that, that there was Right, because that's a key rated game. There's some talks about it in this. So um no, actually Halo was M rated. Um, it yeah, Halo's M rated. It's always been M rated. Oh, I didn't yeah. know that. No, it's always been M rated. Uh, let's see. The commission's initial report released in September 2000 examined the structure and operation of each industry's self regulatory program, parental familiarity, and use of those systems, and whether the industries they were looking at the music industry, the movie industry, and the video game industry in this report. So the industries had marked violent entertainment products in a manner inconsistent with their own parental advisories. The 2000 report found that industry members routinely targeted children in their advertising and marketing of violent entertainment products and that children under age 17 could purchase these products relatively easily. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's 90s, 2000, probably 80s too. Like people didn't give a fuck. They just sold you whatever. Yeah. Well, I'm not, it, either they didn't give a fuck or they didn't know any better. It was just, a, it was, a, it was Wild West. Yeah, yeah, for as much as Wild West could be in the 90s, for sure. Yeah. Um, the commission called upon the industries to strengthen their self-regulatory programs. Self-regulatory program for gaming is like the ESRB. Okay, that's something that it's not, the ESRB is not a government thing, if anybody doesn't know. That is a privately owned, like, uh, run um, company that that does the ratings and stuff like that that was kind of like built out from the industry itself. Yeah, the to industry just chose to self-regulate rather than have the government regulate yes. them. Yes. So, uh, self-regulatory programs by number one, prohibiting target marketing to children and imposing sanctions for violations, improving self-regulatory programs at the retail level, and increasing parental awareness of the ratings and labels. Let's see here. This says the commission has continued to monitor industry self-regulation in this area, releasing four subsequent reports, all finding that the movie and electronic game industries had made progress in limiting marketing of R and M rated products to children, but the music recording industry had not significantly changed its marketing practices. <laughs> oh, they had not. Yeah. So, um, and then it kind of goes in the breakdown of movies. I'm going to pull up the, uh, the game. Let's see. I think it was 26, if I'm not wrong. 
they go into this. I thought this was kind of interesting. Uh, so a few different interesting facts here on the gaming industry. And this, again, this report, there's the video game sales by rating uh, was a graph done. They have it here at 2005. And one of the interesting things to note is that um, they say overall the vast majority of games are rated E with approximately 32% of games rated either T, 24%, or M, 8%. So literally 8% of games around the 2000-2005 era, I would say 2005 is I think specifically the year they're, they're citing here when some of this stuff was done. It's only 8%, but that 8% of games is about is over 15% of overall video game sales for, for M-rated games. So that's just, you know, something interesting. Um, there with the ratings and the type of games that are out. So most of okay. them, most of them are e-games. But Do they have some... any stats about like uh, what type of, demo, like, I don't know how to, how would I put it? Like uh, the marketing on like those M-games, they were like where they get, where they um, got advertised or like what demographics they were targeting or anything. Yeah. Um, they, well, they, okay, so there is one thing I like to say here that um, they talked about the rating process. And just to break it down, you can read in, in, in more detail if you want to read this report fully. But just to paraphrase, one of the things that's interesting is the way that they go about rating is they rely on the companies to tell the rating boards, hey, look, here's the most like graphic or most crazy shit in my game that like you'd probably want to make a rating on. And there's an interesting debate because like I think there was a psychologist from Harvard um uh, that um were complaining and saying that like there were other things in the game that sometimes didn't get cited in the ratings like where it might have been a minor like drug use or alcohol use or something like that that like maybe the game didn't have, you know, T for teen for alcohol use. Because it was just a minor part of the game. And they were like trying to call for like, um, no, you need to play the whole game through and then rate your game. Okay, then you then you give me the full rating of the game. But the pushback on that, which I thought was interesting, is, well, if we were to do that, we would have to hire expert gamers and like they would have to play through, like some of these games are just not, it's easy for just somebody to pick up and play. Like, for instance, Sekiro. Are you just going to get anybody to try and play through Sekiro and rate it? Yeah, like anybody that has no experience with gaming is not going to be able to beat that game. It, or you can get very exactly. far in it. Yeah. Exactly. So, like, their point is, like, we'd have to hire expert gamers, and that would skew the ratings. Because yeah. they're going to feel one way about what it should be rated compared to maybe somebody who like maybe is more aligned with how a parent might see it. And so it's better to just give them the screenshots and try and explain to them like, okay, this is the context and then this is what it is. And like, what do you want? You know, the rating there. I thought that was interesting because I think the, the, the ESRB has a point with that. Like it would take longer. Because you'd have to wait for them to beat the whole game. These can be 100-hour experiences with some of these games. Mm -hmm. Like, if you had to sit down, like, if you're going to fully explore the game, some of these games, you got to do all the side quests in an RPG. 
Who knows? What if some snarky developer put in a little side quest 80 hours in where you can unlock a fuck scene? Like, right? <laughs> Just like with San Andreas where they snuck in the hot coffee codes. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, um, it's, it's, it, that, I thought that was just an interesting thing that I came across reading the report. Now, as far as what your question is concerned, um, let's see. Um, they do have the demographics here of like uh, in 2005, the National Institute of Media and the Family surveyed over 600 fourth through 12th grade students and found that 7 out of 10 children report playing M-rated games, with 61% of children reporting that they own their own M-rated games. Uh, in addition, 60% of children list at least one M-rated game as their favorite. 75% of those kids were boys. 35% were girls. Okay. Um, did they did it next them like where the they had saw the yeah the ad ads placement here? So um, they they don't they didn't really ask them that, but this is something that they had here about what you're talking about. So ad placement. Let's see. In response to findings in the commission's 2000 report, the industry members frequently marked M-rated electronic games to children. I'm sorry, they frequently marketed M-rated electronic games to children under 17 a practice that violated the anti-targeting provision in the gaming industry's ad code. The electronic game industry amended its anti-targeting provision to add specific standards defining targeting. Let's see. Uh, under those provisions, ad for emanated games cannot appear on TV and radio programs with a 35% or more under 17 audience. So that's the parameters. Wow. So what so, year was that? Was that, was that put in? This was uh, supposedly this was the standard back in 94, 95. However, okay. in a 2000 report, like because the ESRB was created, I think, in 94. Yeah. And um, those were the standards that they outlined in their guidelines. But in a 2000 commissions report, they found that they weren't upholding to that. They, yeah. like, it wasn't very done very successfully. By 2005, that was one of the first comments I made in the introduction. And this report is 2005. By the time in 2005, oh no, I'm sorry, this is not 2005. This is later than 2005 because they have stuff from 2006. My apologies. But they are pulling a lot of information from 2005, I'll say. Um, they, but they, they said, though, that like in the 2000s, the opening statement I made was that the video game industry and the movie industry from 2000 on to about 2005, 6 ish, you know, around when this report, I'll look it up in a minute when exactly this report was done, um, the movie and gaming industry have gotten better about like like this restriction here, for instance. Uh, having ads on TV and radio programs with 35% or more of the audience being 17 or under. Yeah, so like, that makes sense to me. I feel like they've gotten better about, it, about yeah. it. Like you were saying, they kids have access to it. They can get access to it on the internet and like on YouTube and things. But I don't feel like the ads are necessarily targeted towards them anymore right yeah they, they can get access to it mm -hmm. I, I would say you're right on that and i mean honestly though there there's a better understanding of who's actually playing games like now if you look at the srb or i mean not the srb but um the esa i think it is and um the information and the statistics they pull like the average age of a gamer is like 35 years old right so yeah. um marketing to older people is you know, is definitely the better way to go. Like there was a, a misconception, or maybe not a misconception. I'm not gonna, I'm gonna take that back because it might actually been accurate. But there was a belief in the '90s that it, kids play video games. It's just kids stuff, 
And that might be true because as kids got older, now that we're the kids that got older, now adults play video games and kids do. Right. You know, now. Like I was saying, it wasn't common for mm-hmm. our parents to play video games when we, were, yes. when we were kids. I knew a couple of kids' parents who like played video games. They grew up playing, you know, uh, Pong or something in the 70s. And they, they, they ended up getting like an NES when they were for themselves when, and when they came out and everything. Yeah. But it wasn't a common thing. Yes. So, um, let's see here. Um, under those positions, ads for M-rated games cannot appear on TV and radio programs with a 35% or more, or in print media or internet sites with a 45% or more under 17 audience. Okay. And then in 2005, the ESRB created a safe harbor modification to its anti-targeting guidelines that allow companies to advertise in games and programs telecast between 10 p.m. and 6 a.m., regardless of audience. So <clears throat> at your nighttime, you don't really have to worry about the audience makeup. You can, you know, advertise M games and all that shit. So, um... Let's see. It says here, the commission's review of advertising on television ads... They say here on popular teen shows, the selected marketing plans did not find any examples of companies placing or planning ads or planning to place ads for M-rated games on shows that would likely violate the ESRB's 35% standard. It is clear, however, that the ESRB's 35% threshold does does little to limit the exposure of children under 17 to such ads. Of the top 100 shows watched by teens on broadcast and in, broadcast and in syndication, only a few exceed the ESRB standard. So what that kind of almost tells me is like, you might have a show that's kind of geared toward teens, but based on your statistical research, it fits under the 35%, even though maybe we all know that that's not really accurate. I'm wondering if like that's the kind of delineation they're making here because they're saying like <clears throat> kids are still watching these ads, even though, you know, they're fitting these guidelines. Well, yeah, because kids are probably watching a lot of shit and probably a lot of shit they shouldn't be watching, especially with cable TV, you know? Right. You yeah, know, you like- have it at home, you have a TV in your room. Your parents ain't going to sit there and scrutinize over everything you watch unless you just want to take the cable completely out your room. So... Oh. Right, and then they have a chance of still seeing the ads, you know, if yeah. mom and dad are watching something, you know, they have a chance to see it, you know, they might be watching something, um, you know, more adult. Yeah, It says, in addition, the under 17 viewership of many of the top cable shows watched by teens does not exceed that threshold of the 35%, but these shows reach large numbers of teens every week. Industry members can and do advertise on some of these shows. In fact, marketing documents supplied by one of the companies indicated that several shows contemplated for ad placements would actually be slightly more effective in reaching teens 12 to 17 than adults 18 to 34. Yet the audience for none of the none of those shows is more than 35% under 17. So that's the weird thing about statistics. That's a kind of exactly what we were talking about just earlier when you talk about like, <clears throat> oh, well, 50% of people are affected by this thing, but you tested 10 people. So five of them are affected. And then, then you're going to say, well, that's good for the 300 million Americans. That's a good statistic. It's not. And I think that's one of the things they're identifying with this. 
that technically these shows, they're hitting the under 35% as far as age range. But like if you have 34%, even if you have 30% of like a million people, that's still 300,000 kids watching the show. You know? Yeah. And it's not a million, it's like 300 million. You know, however, however many hundreds of millions you would get people watching and whatnot. And then also when it went into syndication and stuff. So um, that's just kind of one of the interesting things there. They talk about <clears throat> print ads here, which is fairly interesting. Um, especially because they're talking about trying to monitor with the um, the ad placements in like electronic gaming monthly. Game Pro, yeah, I was about Nintendo to Power, yeah. So they say Electronic Gaming Monthly and Game Pro are widely read by young teens with a twenty nine percent and forty four percent, forty four percent respectively, of their readership being seventeen and under. Sixty nine ads for M rated games were placed in Electronic Gaming Monthly in issues reviewed between September two thousand five and July two thousand six. 31 ads for M-rated games were placed in the subscription edition of GamePro magazine. Uh, under the 45% industry standard, none of the popular game enthusiast magazines other than Nintendo Power is off-limits for M-rated games. Uh, ads. The marketing plans the commission reviewed for this report indicated that all nine of the M-rated games were marketed in one or more of these magazines. These findings are consistent with those of the previous reports regarding the large number of M-rated games advertised in publications widely read by young teens. Uh, and then they kind of nitpick a bit here about Nintendo Power, talking about that they were still, um, you know, putting a large number of T-rated games in Nintendo Power, which is widely read widely read by child gamers. The median age of readers is just under 14, with <clears throat> over 25% of its readership of Nintendo Power is under the age of 13. So similar to the results yeah. in the 2004 report, ads for a large number of T-rated games continue to appear in Nintendo Power. The ESJRB, however, does not view the placement of ads for T-rated games in Nintendo Power as a violation of its anti-targeting standards. They say <clears throat> ads for the T-rated game Bionicle Heroes, Bionicle Heroes, <coughs> Ran in uh, November 2006 editions of Sports Illustrated for Kids, Disney Adventures, and National Geographic for Kids. Uh, publications that ESRB claims to be inappropriate for the advertising of T-rated games based on the review of the publication's demographic data. <clears throat> and then there's here the, the internet. Uh, <clears throat> paid internet advertisement placements for 20 video games released in 06 with M rating. And at least one... Uh, violence-related content descriptor. It says, according to the data obtained by the Nielsen ratings, they say all 20 games were advertised on websites popular with teens. Uh, AddictingGames.com, Artist Direct, Adam Films, AZ Lyrics Universe. There's a number of things. IGN's on there. You know, <clears throat> ads for 16 of the 20. <coughs> Excuse me. Sorry. Did you get you some water? Yeah, I know, right? Ads for the 16 of the 20 sample games ran on sites that have audiences comprised of at least 45% <clears throat> children under the age of 17. Um, so, yeah. So, like, again, it's, it's 
a lot of this is to your point and it is a bit here on viral marketing. Um, <clears throat> it sounds like they've gotten better, of course, but I would say that there's definitely, I think, an expectation for children to be into adult things and adult games and all that stuff. And it was clear marketing to children back in the 80s and 90s of material that was in a, probably, I would deem, inappropriate for kids to be <clears throat> involved with. Oh, yeah. Like, you can Google it and just Google, like, Game Pro ads or, like, something like that. I'm looking at one here, and it's literally just a picture of a lady and, like, a leather bustier and some freaking knee-high <laughs> Uh, knee-high boots, leather boots, with a dude chained up to a wall, and she's a dominatrix with like cleavage and everything out, and she's freaking whipping this guy. And this is an ad in Game Pro for a game called Death Trap Dungeon. <laughs> this was, yeah. So, like, what about this? Uh, this ad here has anything to do about death traps? It looks like a dungeon, not a death trap dungeon, but some type of dungeon. Yeah. You know, but yeah, so I mean, like, you could just Google and you could see how raw these ads were back in the day in the magazines. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you could also look at like, comic books at that time period in the 80s and 90s. A lot of the women were very were drawn very voluptuous, um, <clears throat> and they were very scantily clad as well. And uh, they would, you know, run around doing, and, and these were like kid things, like comics, superheroes, and stuff like that. To the point where even nowadays in our more woke uh, culture that we're in now have kind of started calling out a lot of these things as being a little sexist and like objectifying women and stuff like that, which is not completely wrong. But there was the the common belief that sex sells. And oh, yeah. on some level, it does. It, it, it does garner the interest when you see <clears throat> how that's... There's a fighting game based completely on the concept of sex cells. It's called Dead or Alive. That <laughs> <laughs> yeah. is basically what they built that game's foundation on. Is the right. fact There's that still a th they still have that. I mean, they still they, do. We call it fan yeah, yeah, they 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 have. That's what we call fan service nowadays. It's in a lot of. Let's say a lot of things from Japan, actually, from anime to like games and everything. You yeah. see it getting cut down on a lot here in America, mm -hmm. but I think maybe mm -hmm. Japan still got a ways to go with that. Yeah, but you know, you know, one thing I have noticed too is I feel like in a, <clears throat> movies, and I would even maybe say games, but you know, games never really dealt with games. Never, never. There's very few games you can point to about like really crazy sex stuff in it. Mm -hmm. Uh, unlike movies, but I would even say the movies nowadays have even taken a step back from a lot of the, the graphic sex stuff that we would see in movies like in the eighties and the nineties and even early two thousands. And I think a lot of that has to do with the accessibility of porn. Yes. Because yeah, I, think I think so. Back then porn was a lot harder to come by. So putting a sex scene, showing a titty, in a movie was a much more like, Oh, and like, it kind of like drew an audience to it to on mm -hmm. some level, especially with raunchy comedies. There was a whole thing with that. And I think that kind of started with that movie. Porky's was kind of the one that really like kind of leaned into that and kind of started. It was up. one of the first, if it wasn't yeah. the first, yeah, it was definitely yeah. one of the early ones. If it wasn't the one you're right. Um, but nowadays, 
I feel like, yeah, we still tell dirty jokes and have sex jokes and stuff like that in movies. But, like, explicit just nudity and sex for, like, no reason has definitely dwindled. And I, I, I see it less and less, especially in the newer movies that come out. Uh, there's there's less and less, especially nowadays with the Me Too movements and everything like that, there's less tolerance for doing shit like that. Where uh, back then, why people are getting called out now is because back then there was the whole casting couch thing. And there's the whole, like, a lot of women's roles in movies was to show their body, you know? Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, we've moved forward from that. I'm not, I don't know if we're completely gone from that. And maybe we shouldn't be completely gone from that, too, because I don't think it's completely wrong if a woman is comfortable with it to celebrate her own body and show it off. And if she wants to do scenes like that in a movie and stuff, and if there's artistic value to it, for that matter, as well, it's a different conversation. However, right. but if it's just for exploitation, for exploitation's sake. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. So, like, there's, there's, there's that whole element of things that I feel like we've shifted away from. And um, even according to this report here, as it's going down in the 2000s, there's less and less uh, egregious examples of advertising to children because they've started abiding harder to the ESRB rules. They talked to you that the ESRB had upped some of the fines and stuff that they were giving companies as well for breaking these rules. Because, again, these are self-regulated. You know, they're uh, they're they're trying to um, control themselves. They're not having the government put down regulations. They're trying to regulate themselves. And yeah, um, it it would be better. It's just like the, what the movie industry did. Mm-hmm. You know, they decided to regulate themselves with the MPA. Yeah. You know, when they came out with the the movie ratings, because any industry like this does not want the government getting involved in censorship. Yeah. Because it's gonna. It just wouldn't be good. It just wouldn't be good. No, I, I would agree. And uh, you could see that, like, okay, just even in this, Federal Trade Commission mystery shop results, percentage of children able to purchase M-rated games. In 2000, it was 85%. In 2006, it's 42%. Mm, okay, yeah. So they've definitely put into place, like, things are progressively getting, I guess, better in those areas oh yeah i think a lot people like i was saying a lot people are a lot more aware of like the rating system what they're for they're like technology has become a lot more to the forefront of our like common day lives so a lot of people are more technologically savvy so we learn to send how to use things like parental controls even though they may not be perfect but it helps like it helps curb things right and Mm -hmm. you know you have retailers that are getting stricter about enforcing the the age limits on some of these games and everything. True. Uh, the only problem with that becomes with the rise of the digital age. Um, there, there's still other problems. Like, I, I'm, it, it has gotten better in some aspects here. But again, as these older problems are almost non-problems, new problems are arising. Like, well, of like gambling casinos in my Fortnite game or whatever it is, you know, like right. basically, you know, getting skins or getting these things or like these loot boxes where you pay and you see what you get. It's like a pack of cards, you know, you just buy it and you get random stuff. Maybe you get good stuff. Maybe you don't. Yeah. And uh, it's not gambling, but kind of is I like the stock market. It's not gambling. But um, 
there's new problems that arise and issues that bring the question too of if these things should be in a kid's game or why they're in a kid's game and stuff like that. Oh yeah. Uh, and and that, a lot it, of places in the EU have already ruled that like Denmark, mm-hmm. you can't do, you can't do have loot boxes in a lot of the games mm-hmm. in Denmark. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And everything. So yeah. like, it's still something we're trying to figure out here. I feel like there, I feel like companies backed off because of all the pressure Again, they chose to self-regulate rather than have the government get involved, which I think is a good idea. But mm. you still see it. You still see like loot boxes and like gotcha games all over the mobile phones and shit like that. Mm. Yeah. So, um, and I, I think that'll kind of do it on this discussion. Uh, I just thought it'd be a fun talk on that. Um, I, I find it fascinating, especially for myself that I have kids and um, it's some of the issues that come up. And I know I would imagine there's some listeners out there that may have kids as well and um, that deal with games. And um, it's something to keep your mind on. I, I, You know, it's good to see that in retail stores, you know, like, yeah, we've seen a progression of it being harder for kids to just go and buy an M game, right? But arguably so, less people are going to retail stores to buy games now. Especially right. now. Right, with the digital storefronts. Now, right. for me, like, I have some mild parental controls on my kids' um, Xbox and PlayStation and stuff like that. Like, any game that they try to get, like, it, I have to put in a passcode that allows them to play it. So at least I know whatever game that they're going to try and play. You know? Yeah. And, and that's helpful. Um, I think that might be the best way to do it. Like if you put, are going to let your kid buy things off the digital storefront, just you put uh, the password, make it so that they have to use a password to purchase anything. Mm-hmm. That way if they want to buy something. They got to check with you first. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think that's one of the best ways to do it, especially if you're going to be doing more digital than physical. I mean, physical, you can talk to somebody there and that's always good too. And uh, you could tell somebody there and ask questions and get a better understanding of what the game is, what's, you know, what's going on with it and whatever. So, um, and, and that's a good way to go about it too, if, if you want. But in this day and age with COVID, you know, there's a lot less of that happening. Um, but um, the the ultimate answer to the question is, I think... I I personally don't think things like we mentioned in the beginning, like Deadpool. I don't think like that movie was made with the hopes that eight year old kids around would like enjoy this rated R Deadpool movie. Right. However, I do think that they know that these eight year old kids are going to watch it anyways. Oh yeah, uh, they're going to try to find the way to do it. Yeah, but I don't think it's directly marketed them anymore. I don't think now, so Deadpool, anymore, but I think there was yeah. a time when it was and they didn't give a fuck. Uh, clearly, with the Mortal Kombat ad as the example, that's clearly aimed at younger children. Um, and there's, there's movies and um, there's a bunch of weird stuff out there that's definitely just got weird shit to it. Like, I was just listening to a podcast how did this get made? And we're talking about this movie called Holy Matrimony. And it's a movie about some some woman who's like in her 30s who ends up through some weird way married to a 12-year-old kid. And like there's some very crazy... And the 12-year-old kid is actually a very young Joseph Gordon-Levitt. 
Oh, okay. I didn't. I have never heard of this movie. Yeah, yeah. it came out in I think ninety five or something, somewhere in the early nineties. And um, that's right. Yeah, yeah. and um, mm-hmm. there's like kissing scene in the movie, like a almost makeout scene. I don't want to say make out. They weren't making out. That's not that's not fair to say. But there was definitely a kiss on the lip scene, where the the lady, the one, the female actress, I forget her name, that was uh, I think it's something Arquette. Her last name's Arquette. I don't remember Patricia Arquette. Patricia Arquette. Yeah. Um, she was caught in an interview asked about how was it giving Joseph Gordon-Levitt his first kiss of his life because they had a kiss they they actually had a kiss on screen when he was fucking 12 you know so like like again like that almost seems like a silly idea if you say it like a 12 year old married a 30 year old wow like you can make it almost a silly thing i just googled this movie you're never gonna believe who directed this movie oh yeah i know spock yeah fucking leonard nimoy directed this movie yep Yep, it's a crazy movie. Um, and, like, you can almost have this, like, could kids, like, this is like a kid married, like, they can't be that crazy. And then you watch some of it, and it's like, uh, it's crazy. <laughs> or, for instance, one of the other interesting things, like Mortal Kombat, picking on Mortal Kombat again, the movie came out and it was PG-13. But the games are rated 17 and up. All right. So, like, why would you even if you were clearly marketing to your the age range of who can play your game why would you not make that movie r you know exactly. but the other argument is movies are expensive to make and even though kids may not be able to play the games they might like the movie and if we can get teenagers in there with adults it's just able to make more money and fair enough. So, um, you know, you can't, it, it, it's it's definitely something you can go down a rabbit hole with. And that's why I brought it up here. Uh, and I don't think uh, an individual person who's working on a project like that is like seriously like, ooh, I want to get these kids to watch all this like crazy stuff or whatever. <clears throat> but I do think that sometimes the pursuit for the almighty dollar can make certain things like like marketing to kids and stuff like that a kind of like a you know a morality issue that kind of goes unanswered because it's like whatever I'm putting it out there it's on the parents and I think a lot of times it's true it kind of is on the parents but the ESRB I do think is an important thing because it's not fair to say that if you're not giving the parents any information, especially back then in the nineties when there was a lot of parents who just really didn't understand what the fuck a video game was or like, what's the deal with it? There's still misconceptions about games today. Um, I think one of the last episodes we did, um, didn't we play uh, a clip from the Fox news uh, about mass effect? Oh yes. yes. And Lady we were was talking. completely wrong. About what was yeah, actually we were talking in the game. about honesty in gaming journalism. Yeah, yeah, and like she was completely wrong about it. She was misrepresenting the game completely because she had no understanding of it. She just saw things and was like bad, but they didn't do honest journalism and sit down and look at the full picture. They picked what they wanted to pick out of it and make a piece to like shoot it for their ratings. 
and you put somebody on who knows who's from the industry, somebody doesn't have this debate. We're going to have this debate. And it's not really a debate because it's like two minutes. So nobody really gets to say any real concrete concepts or ideas. So, um, yeah, it's, it's just one of those. And, um, as far as that, like the marketing and stuff of it goes, like, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a weird thin line. I don't, I don't think they're, they're trying to do that, but I, I, at the same time though, um, I do think you can kind of, I think nowadays it's much better. I think nowadays, I think, I think the problem, I think, especially in the nineties, I don't think there was a lot of confidence that older people would play games in general, but older people were making games and they wanted to make cool stuff for them and to keep money going to it. They kind of had to sell the kids and it doesn't justify it. It's not right. But I wonder if that was some of the thought process. Because like you said, nowadays, I feel like there's a definitely a more appropriate understanding and like, I'm making this for adults. Yeah. This is 17 yeah. or God of War. They were not trying to put that on a Barney show for the commercials. Right. They didn't reach out to FGTV YouTubers to like push my God of War game. You know, like, cause they're a very family friendly oriented show, but even that one, I've saw games that they've played on. Like, are you familiar with that? It's kind of a big YouTube channel, FGTV. No, I'm not familiar with that side of YouTube with like the family friendly stuff. Mm -hmm. I'm the other, I'm on the other end of YouTube. Yeah, no, I got you, uh, but I mean, I have yeah. kids, so they they see it, and I've seen them, and um, he does a pretty good editing job. Um, he's got a lot of energy. And all he and all his family, they play games together and all that kind of stuff. And um, he's made comments I've seen before about being a little meticulous about certain games and stuff, depending on what it is in it. But I've watched him play a game where, like, you throw. It's a game where you you got two characters, one on each end of like this kind of platform, and you've got to throw something at the right angle to hit the person on the opposite end of the platform. You're throwing it back and forth at each other. And in that though, you when you hit somebody though, you would see like blood spurts and sometimes like bones stick out and stuff like that. But it was kind of um is not a very photorealistic drawing or anything of that. It was very abstract. So, like, it, it was trying to be a little more goofy about it. But it was definitely, like, as far as violent images go, you know, kind of close. So I don't know exactly what his parameters are of it. But he's definitely not showing off the new Mortal Kombat game on his kid's YouTube channel, you know? As much, I don't think Ed Boon and them are trying to hit them up to push it either. I think now we have a better understanding of our audiences and the audiences have expanded. The gaming industry is much bigger now than what it was in the nineties. And so there is much more stable, uh, customer bases to kind of advertise to that. You can kind of not have to be as immoral about it right. where yeah. earlier on in the years when it was a new industry, you were just trying to get anybody to buy your idea because, like, that's the other thing, too, I'd say. Good games, good movies, good content, I think, comes from a real place more times than not. And they take somebody who's invested and passionate about what they're doing 
Now, this is not a it's not a straight rule of thumb. This does not always happen that way. You can look at a movie like The Room and see that things don't always happen this way. But a lot of times when you see something that's really good or something that's very interesting, there's probably a person or tons of people who were very passionate about getting that thing done. And to keep it successful and keep that, like, you got to be interested in what you're doing. And, like, making the best Barney game ever might be very difficult for a group of programmers and stuff who just are not into that shit at all. <laughs> I mean, hell, you even see that with some kids' program, like, kids' movies, these animated, like, Pixar, DreamWorks films. And there's tons of little sex jokes thrown throughout. Because it's a bunch oh, of fucking yeah, they adults. they gotta put stuff in here for the parents and everything for, for adults. Yeah, not yeah. just not just for parents to keep them entertained, but I would say even for themselves sometimes. I mean, oh, there's yeah. there's all those things like these old '80s, '90s like Disney movies, the animated Disney movies that have like like almost like dicks or like like the word sex written in or like you know different stuff like that. Because there's a bunch of adults who are doing shit that they're really not that probably interested in on that mm-hmm. level. But yeah, the, but it's the, like uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. There's like a frame that people say that you, know, um, you can see Jessica Rabbit's panties in like one frame, but it's only one frame mm-hmm. of the movie mm-hmm. when she like gets thrown out of a car. Mm-hmm. You know, so you know animators stick that shit in because they're there freaking just drawing this movie freaking yep. for days on time and and, and they need something, something to that they're particularly yeah. as it may not be something they're as particularly passionate about like if it was their idea and stuff so when you're right. building a game you're an indie studio from the ground up you're gonna try and put into something that you're gonna be passionate about because that's what you're gonna do good um and then when you put it out there but your audience is kids and you have an adult themed thing well if there's no rating system you're gonna see who's interested and market it to them right and if that's kids, well, it's kids. You got to recoup your investment some kind of way. And that sounds ugly and immoral. And there's a bit of it that may be for sure. But then there's the other side too that, like, you know, if, like, well, these kids are probably going to get it anyways. Like, we already pulled the statistic out of there. Like, 60% of kids, are like, yeah, I have an end game at my house. It's like my favorite game. 60% of the, like, the 600 kids they 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 question from fourth grade to 12th grade 600 of them you know there's like 60 percent have them they're gonna get them regardless so why not like yeah this is a cool game dude go ahead and get it right so there's yeah there's a there's these weird arguments for for that especially nowadays as kids have more access to adult content much easier and they're getting it way sooner it does blur the line of like, you know, what should we, should we be more censorship driven or should we be more educational about like, yeah, this is an adult game. These are adult themes. This is kind of what it's about. And like guide your kid through it. Or do you just suppress it till you feel like they're whatever age that they can do it? You know, I think that's, um, that's a real question. Yeah, that that's a discussion in itself. Right? Yeah. Yeah, it really is a discussion in itself. And it's something, you know, I think it's ultimately something that each parent has to decide for themselves and for their kids. Oh, yeah, for Because sure. just like everybody, everybody's kids are going to be different. 
I'm not going to say that there's one size, there's never going to be a one size fits all solution to that to say that, oh yeah, the best way to do this is to, you know, just censor everything or to not censor it and just mm -hmm. let everybody see everything because people react differently to this kind of stuff and you don't ever know. Right. Well, yeah, that too. I would also say imprinting, um, uh, definitely happens. Um, I, 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 you definitely hear stories about it. Mm -hmm. Kid saw some kind of sex thing at a real young age and now it's their fucking thing. Right. They get it. It gets imprinted on them and they kind of grow up, mm. you know, thinking about it and you become obsessed with it. Yeah. 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 yeah it happens, you know, and especially back then in the nineties, like I said, mm. it was like, it was kind of like the wild west when it came to like video games. Cause the industry was still young. They were still finding themselves. There weren't really that many regulations and the ones that they did come up with weren't really strictly enforced, mm. you know? And then, there was the culture in the nineties itself. Everything was either about sex, gross out humor, being offensive. And it, like, it was, it was a really different time, you know, than what everything is now. I feel, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I feel like things are a lot more, I don't know. What would be the word? Um, I guess censored than what they were in the nineties. Kids don't really get into the same kind well, of things I that we did that, I th well actually i think the 90s was actually the biggest push on censorship yeah. and between 90s and 2000s like i think the 80s was the no holes bars and then the 90s we started getting the censorship and one of the things i, I point to i've made this comment in like in the movies and comics podcast is like the ninja turtles movie if you look at the first one it was right at 1990 it was fairly like grounded for what a ninja turtles movie could be uh, a little darker um, things like that and mom's groups came out against it and the next movie Ninja Turtles 2 Secret of the Used is a goofy silly movie like they literally Shredder is killed in that movie by Michelangelo playing a guitar really loud and blows him through a wall and then he turns into Super Shredder and kills himself because he just knocks the doc down on top of himself he doesn't actually yeah. fight there's no fight because uh, yeah. mom's yeah, groups and stuff pushed against that to change. Like there was a lot of push on censorship, and I think you had and and for that matter too. I grew up in church, and I would say the um, the Christian culture in America was much vibrant and stronger then, and had more of a vocal voice than I think it does now. I've seen a lot of different church groups that I used to be involved with kind of almost fade to the wayside. Different like programs and stuff that were there that aren't really there anymore. Yeah. Um, because the younger generation is just not as reached or not as into it as they were before. And so like in those groups, like they were the ones that were sitting out in front of Harry Potter protesting because magic in the parking lot, you know. But oh, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. not that. really a thing anymore. You know, whether it's no. because either they've become a little more enlightened as Christians or they're just not as many of them anymore. Yeah. So I think I think that touches on a different topic of uh, a lot of use today. I think they're kind of I think there's a lot more um, nature of distrust towards, uh, I guess you call it authority, infrastructure yeah. and like that, like these yeah. groups. I see that a lot in the young people today a lot of younger a lot of a lot of generation z has that 
that outlook. Yeah. Whereas I don't think it was, that wasn't, a, even as, uh, like I said, as kind of Wild West, maybe the 90s as was, I feel like institutions were still trusted. I think um, there was a little more wild things going on, on on the cable television front because cable television was kind of seen as, as that, right? Yeah. You had your basic TV, which is what I only had, like your like eight, ten channels or whatever it was. And those were very like cleaned up, you know, like they, those were fairly, you know, didn't have a lot yeah. of stuff going on in it as far as any risque stuff. And it was cable networks like your MTV uh, and things like that that were like this edgy kind of like thing that they tried to do, right? right. And and that's where you get some of that. And But, I mean, I would say like kids' movies and stuff, I think censorship was a little heavier. I mean, that's, again, when we got the video game industry went under fire in 94 behind the violence in the video games and stuff and where the ESRB created. I, I don't... I don't know how Wild Westy it was. I think in the '90s we started, we started wanting to censor, but also creating lanes for adult content. And then, and then, like what you're saying is the lanes for adult content in the '90s was a lot crazier. Yeah, and, and it attracted yeah. kids too. It attracted the younger kids, and it kind of brings about full circle the conversation we have here that you know, kids are still getting into adult content or older content. And even though we created these lanes to try and separate them back in the 90s and stuff, because I think in the 80s it was very blended together. And TV didn't really have as much risque stuff, but you'd find PG movies from the 80s that are like, this is PG? Yeah, the... You can... I don't know, like the MPA, the rating system, I feel mm. like has shifted. It definitely did shift. Because yes. like you can find some older things that are rated... Like, like you said, PG, and you may not feel like it would pass for PG by modern standards. No, exactly. Yeah, yeah 100%. So um, that's, that's it, it's changed as we had created more lanes and better understandings of, I guess, how we wanted to do our censorship. And, um, yeah, like the crazy stuff from the 90s was crazy because we didn't see a lot of things as, like, wrong or whatever that um, – we do now, you know, right. with the woke culture that we have and stuff that we didn't have back then. So it's crazy to today's standard. But at the same time, there were a lot of censorship and a lot of things like that pushed for kids to try and like save them from whatever TV was doing, you know. So, yeah, it's it's a mixed bag of things, and it, and it can go down a whole different lane of conversation, but I still think it pertains to what we were talking about, and um, I hope listeners have enjoyed our discussion on it, and um, please write in with any feelings you have about it. You know, yeah, like, is are these things that can be R-rated or M-rated designed for children, or are they not? You know, or was it in the 90s or now are we better? You can write in, let us know. Um, I think it'll always be something that will have, you know, some forms of discussion to be able to be had. Um, so, but we'll go ahead and shut it down. Uh, this is Who's Next Podcast. I gave some plugs for my buddies in the beginning of the episode, so they don't need them now. And um, uh, is there any last things you want to say, Kev, before we shut it down? 
Uh, well, I did want to get into some of the direct releases and talk to him a little bit about you, but we ha- I guess we've been going on a little long right now. What are some of the, the quick, like, uh, highlights? Just give me, a, like, a quick, like, you know, one or two games from the Nintendo Direct that, like, were big. Because we did just get a new Nintendo Direct. Yeah. And, again, we're not was- really news here, so I'm not really concerned with that. But I am concerned to hear about anything that's particularly well, anyway, exciting. Well, I just kind of wanted to discuss, it, uh, like, some of the things that you might be excited about. Sure, That's yeah. what I was wondering, hoping, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, uh... I got an article pulled up here. This is supposed to be like the 20 biggest announcements. So I'm just going to go through and kind of pick ones I think might be more most interesting. Uh, I Just well, to say something, and I don't think it was on the Nintendo Direct, but I did see that uh, we're getting a Ninja Gaiden collection series coming our way. Yes, that, that, was in the, pretty... that was in the Direct. It was um, the oh, okay. Ninja... Yeah, that was actually in the Direct. It's Ninja Gaiden uh, Master Collection. Nice. So, yeah, I figured you would be kind of excited for that. I don't know if I'm really. I don't know. I might get it. I have not really been a fan of Team Ninja. Mm-hmm. For like, like, there's it's the rare Team Ninja game that I like. I think the only game that they really made that I liked was Hyrule Warriors. Okay. Okay. Yes, but I'm willing to give it a shot. I hear people say it's hard as hell. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious. I'm willing to at least try it out. The other thing that got announced is uh, that I'm excited for is uh, Skyward Swords finally getting your HD remake. Yeah. Okay. It's getting its HD port. I'm excited for that. Uh, you never got to play Cyrus Sword, have you? Mm-mm. Yeah, no. so this would be a good opportunity for you to play it. Okay. They do have regular controls in it. They have regular controls in it. Oh, for, yeah, uh, no, that was the biggest problem with it, right? Yeah, that was the uh, the most... You could choose between most controls or regular controls, right? So the Either or, if you try whichever one you want to do. But that was a lot of people's complaint to think with it. I think a lot of people like to try to shit on Skyward Sword just because it was on the Wii. And there was a there was this big air about the Wii when it came out. Oh, it's not a real gaming console. Real gamers don't play Wii and all this shit. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. So, but I like it. I think it's a great game. It's not like a perfect Zelda, but I think it's good. It's definitely underappreciated. And I think you should, you should, try, you should try it out and play it for yourself and see what you think. There's also a new Mario Golf. I got uh, announced. Uh, I remember playing the, the other Mario Golf on uh, Mario 64, and it was a lot of fun. This one looks like a lot of fun, something I was wanting to try out. Um, there was uh, a new kind of Final Fantasy. It looks like Final Fantasy Tactics to me, but a lot of people are saying that it's more like um, Octopath Traveler, but I haven't played Octopath yet. So to me, it's, it looks like Final Fantasy Tactics, and it's... Uh, they're calling it right now uh, Project Triangle Strategy. They, haven't, they don't have a um, definite name on it, but it looks like a really good tactical RPG that I think would probably be um, up for alley. I'm At least I'm really excited for it. I downloaded the demo. There's a free demo available right now on the Switch store. Uh, I downloaded it. I, got, I have yet to play it. But I'm really excited for that one. Uh, and I think that's probably... Yeah, that might be it for like the biggest things that they announced. It looks like exciting because some of the other things is like they got no, they got no more heroes. Three is on the way, um, and then there's like an expansion pass for Hyrule Hyrule Warriors: uh, Age of Calamity that's coming okay. out that I'm probably going to end up getting. But yeah, that's probably like the biggest thing is the Skyward Sword, and uh, Splatoon Three is another thing. Mm. It's probably the two biggest announcements that they had. I can't believe we got another Splatoon. 
Still no word of Metroid Prime, huh? Yeah, no Metroid Prime, no another Mario Kart or anything. Mm-hmm. And then um, no news on Breath of the Wild 2 or anything. But Yeah, I don't hey. expect to hear anything about Breath of the Wild for at least another year or two. I mean, like, because we saw the quick little opening that they're working on it. I imagine, though, that maybe next year we'll get some more stuff on Breath of the Probably Wild 2. Probably so, yeah. yeah. I don't think you'll see anything about it much this year. Maybe at the end of this year, you might get some teasers. You might maybe see some some uh, some a little bit of gameplay or something at the end of this year, and then like maybe mid to next end of yet next year, you'll get Breath of the Wild two. Yeah, potentially. This uh this direct only covered up to the spring, so they still probably have another direct that I might have to do in like summer. They might end up doing in some of the cover like the rest of the year because this direct only covered up to the spring, and I, I doubt this is the only thing they have planned for uh mm. for this year, right? Because this is the first big direct in like two years. Mm. Okay, okay. Well, um, pretty dope. Appreciate you bringing that up. Uh, I'm glad you brought it up so we didn't skip over it. Um, there's a few good things to know about. Uh, yeah, I'm particularly interested in Skyward Sword. It's it's one one of the things I missed. Uh, I'm trying to think. I might have. What was the game? What was the Zelda game after? Um, Twilight Princess. That was Skyward Sword on the Wii. Yeah. Okay, so I did play that one. I did play, it and I got all the way up to the Air Temple, and then I stopped. I got distracted with something else, and I never got back to it. I did play Skyward Sword, though, I think. Or wait, does Twilight Princess have an air temple? It does. Skyward, I mean, uh, Twilight Princess has a sky temple. Yeah. Sky temple. Maybe uh, maybe I'm thinking of Twilight Princess because I know I didn't beat Twilight Princess, but I played a good bit of it. So never mind. Yeah, I don't think I ever played Skyward Sword, and I just played Twilight Princess. I got to the uh, sky temple, and I fell off. So yeah, that's what happened. Okay. Um, all righty. Well, um you know, I would like to maybe hear Ocarina of Time and Majora's Mask come to the Switch. I think that would get me fired up. I'd, I'd yeah. try and play those through again. There's still the rumor that uh, both Twilight Princess and Wind Waker are going to be coming to the Switch. Because the, they, they got the HD port for the Wii U. Mm. And they're planning on it. People are saying they're still going to port it to the Switch. Because just about every good Wii U game is getting ported to the Switch. It makes sense. That's the move. Uh, I think that's a smart move because now you, now you can actually make some money on these games and you don't have to do too much to port them over. And uh, you have a system now where those games can live, where you had a system before where they couldn't. Right. So, yeah, that's the move. I'm glad to see Nintendo's doing their thing. Um, all right. Well, I guess now we'll go ahead and shut it down. Uh, thank you all for listening. Check me out, Sammy Savage 88 on Twitch. And... Um, you can check out Sir Kalo. Sir Kalo, right? Or is it Sir Kalo Blaze? Sir Kalo, right? No, it's Sir, K- it's Sir Kalo now. Yeah, it's yeah. Sir Kalo. So check out Sir Kalo on Twitch. Uh, he's saying that, you know, he's been on a break for a while, but you are looking to come back pretty soon. And also look yeah, out for that I'll- YouTube content, man. I'm very curious to see your Bloodborne stuff, homie. So. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, I think it's going to be very interesting. Because uh, um, trying to do, like, the live commentary, I'm not so good. I'm not great at but uh like i feel like i'm much better at writing my thoughts down and because so that's why i want to try doing this new kind of scripted format and kind of commenting you know on the gameplay and everything so i actually 
was one of my ideas is to do a playthrough and then have us kind of sit behind it and and like edit it up till we get the points and then just kind of do like an LP of like you know a game or something. Uh, I had that thought a while back, so you're kind of doing something of that nature, which I think is pretty cool. So I'm I'm, I'm looking I'm looking forward to seeing when you post it. I'll, I'll definitely watch it. So yeah. Yeah, it should be, uh, like I said, I should have it edited up sometime in the next week. So, uh, cool, cool. by the time this posts, it'll probably, it'll, this will probably post be, Monday. Yeah. Yeah, it'll post Monday. So, yeah, but when this posts, uh, it'll probably post, I'll probably put it up on YouTube not long after, probably sometime in the same week. Okay. Cool. Well, all right. There it is. Um, I believe I might be guesting on Nerds Podcast next week. So, y'all might be able to check me out there. And, uh, of course, stay tuned here. We out.